Welcome hey, back Arizona, to the show. Today? Yeah, well? let's start off by a, a friendly greeting between the hosts. Hey. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Hey, hey, oh, yeah, okay. Catchphrases no, and stuff. Yeah, that's what we should, yeah, uh, yeah. we get those catchphrases where we say a couple of words or, you know, some kind of phrase and then boom, that's what our merchandise will be. Yeah, be it should be, running. yeah, merchandise will be, hey, hey, Erto. Mm-hmm. That'd be a merchandise. We we ended on happy birthday. I think we did happy birthday, Bob, because there's somebody named Bob out there. Oh, that's yeah. right. That was your idea. That was funny. That was funny. I, I said, sorry, I had to pick up something. No worries. Uh, how'd that come out? There was something we said we were doing this for you, Bob. Oh, right. So yeah. And you saying happy birthday because you figure there's a Bob out there somewhere whose birthday it is. And that was cool. I like that. Yeah, I think we were saying, like, we got to, um, you know, end on a good note. And I was like, well, we could end on happy birthday. It's probably somebody's birthday. Yeah, you know. So that'll be the thing, you know, happy birthday. People have no idea. What that can yeah, happy birthday that. with a, with an ellipsis and a question mark. Oh, that's a good question, actually, to start off. You know, what do you think? How do you feel about ellipses? You know, like when I first started doing uh, scripts, I was like crazy with ellipses, and then I gradually. Yeah, I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I remember talking to you about that too. I know you like to do ellipses because you always you like ellipses because there's always a sense. That the thoughts going on further, or the moment, or the action is going on further, right. and I hate that because I just want that. I I'm only people when I go to a movie or watch a television show. I want the writer who's actually telling us what we're going to see or do. Yeah. I want the writer to tell me a story, and I don't want to do any work myself. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm a viewer. Yeah. When I'm a writer, I do all the work. But mm-hmm. when you're a viewer, or when I'm a viewer, I don't want any work on my part so i hate when they leave open endings you know like mm-hmm. it ends on a, on a something that could go many ways and that's oh man isn't that cool it could go a number of ways no it's not cool yeah. pick one and, and pick one and do that one yeah i'm here just to be entertained not to have to think yeah and i you know i think originally like the, way, the reason i was doing it is because it seemed i do it a lot in dialogue and it seemed like the natural way people kind of trail off and don't yeah, necessarily complete their sentences. But when you go to read, once I, you know, the more I r- was reading, and I, probably after I, like, once I became a reader, um, then you really start to see it very condensed, very concise, you know, and it yeah. like, and it really helps actually the pace of the story. And I'm, for that yeah. reason, I think yeah. I'm like a big fan of commas too. Commas speed up the writing, whereas and kind of like, they elongate the pacing, but also don't emphasize what's the most important of the different and topics, you know? So, yeah, you know, some people like, we're talking about, now that we're talking about editing areas, but this is interesting. I think that, like, some people don't, some people don't put the comma before the final and, before the mm-hmm. and, so and so, in, in a series. Right. Yeah, they yeah. don't put a comma. And to me, that links the last, the previous mm-hmm. one and the last one too closely. Everything mm-hmm. else is separated by a comma. So if you don't put a comma, the and seems to make those two elements seem more importantly connected mm-hmm. than all the other elements. So I always put a comma before the and. I know people who are, I know somebody who's an editor and somebody who, who works for a living making, uh, uh, rewriting, like like institutionalized, institutionalized, institutional film, films and 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 documents, and she hates when somebody puts in a comma. She doesn't want that extra comma before the hand, but hmm. 
That's it was like Democrats or Republicans. We couldn't get along. You put us in a room about commas and we'd beat the shit out of each other. When I was it a was copywriter like, for this company that I used to work at um, in L.A., um, the the guy who ran the company, like the, he was really the son of the owner, but he would always like give me copy, and then he did that. He would have like three different topics in a sentence, and he would have comma comma no comma before the end and i would always like correct it and send it back to him and i he would always recorrect it and then send it back to me so we just did this back and forth you know and a lot yeah. of times it was like uh picky stuff nitpicky stuff like that and he would do like he would write further in the beginning of a sentence instead of furthermore and it's only oh. applicable sometimes you know you can't write further yeah. to start a sentence yeah. for everything <laughs> you know what i mean because it's not it's not just yeah, like yeah. further, it's like, you know, furthermore, like, you know, you're continuing a thought. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I know what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah those so. are, isn't that funny? It's, everybody has their areas. Like, you could you could have a real good scene of conflict between two editors, you know, just, yeah. editing, <laughs> yeah. just editing text, you know, and you're just going, well, this comma, is, you're really pissing me off with these commas you keep putting back in. I take them out for a reason. And I put them back for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, fuck you. No, fuck you. Then the guy pulls out a knife and stabs the guy in the hand. <laughs> yeah, and it becomes a blood a blood match and stuff. But, you know, it actually makes a difference in terms of the flow of the read, you know? And that's where, yeah. like, I, I started doing this thing, too, sometimes where I would put periods in between each word because, it, like, it's more of a yeah. staccato point, you know? Of right, that works word. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, but I, then I, I, I would get that. notes from a producer one time that was like, why are you putting all these periods in between the, in between each word? And I was like, it's because you're emphasizing each word. You know what I mean? Like, mm. because they're like, you, you know, the, tr the, the hard and fast rules, you can't give direction to the actors or the directors. You know, you're, you're creating this world where, you know, you're supposed to leave it up to interpretation so that they can right, right. change to everything some degree, for I you. I don't buy that because being a being a control writer who mm -hmm. likes my stuff to be the way I see it, right? I, I put in direction, but I don't put in too much. If you put in too much direction, then they catch on and they say, "Hey, you know, leave us alone. We don't want your direction." So I don't put in much, but I put in those key ones that I know if they don't do it my way, I'm not going to like it. Yeah. So I, I tr it's kind of like a an adjustment in between. Yeah, I mean, I, I do I do that, and I do what you say. So not for the period, but I don't want a, an ellipsis there, because ellipsis makes a pause. You want right. one, you want each word to be said distinctively and separately, right. like a period, and not like a pause in between each word. Right. Yeah. It makes so. a it makes a big difference, though. It makes a difference on the way you read the work, and then it makes mm -hmm. a difference on and, and the way an actor would interpret how to speak the part. You know, and yeah, true, true, absolutely true. Yeah, all those things are important. People don't understand how important the writer is to the whole project. You know, without the writer, there's nothing. I mean, people, everybody says that. You know, yeah. you have to start with, but in the way you write, it affects how they interpret it. If you, right. if you really have a hand and you put in an interior or parenthetical direction on every speech or every line, uh, then they then they piss it all off and say, yeah. you know, screw it. This yeah. guy is trying to micromanage us, right. and they don't do any of it. So psychologically, that's why I only do really key ones. Yeah. So they, they're kind of, you know, they're more apt to see. I respect their ability, their ability and their right to interpret. 
but not on this particular line, you know? It's interesting, too, because that can kind of like, the, especially the parenthetical, where you're giving a hint to how this reading should be, you know, and that, like you said, you're micromanaging the actor. Did you get a lot of, what was your feedback from actors working with so many different types of actors, especially like you're working with some heavy hitters, some of the best actors in the business. So did they give you yeah. like, you know, any context or say anything, make corrections, any notes or? A taxi and cheers. Jim Brooks established the tone for the the respect or the responsibilities of of each person. Right. And the actors had their area, and the writers had their area, the director had had the directors had their areas. And Glenn Leslie learned a lot from Jim Brooks when they were doing MTM shows. And I learned almost everything I learned in early TV from Jim Brooks. Um, know that don't give the actors too much but when you give them what you want they have to do that yeah and i never had we had big you know danny devito and and uh uh judd hirsch people who were well danny wasn't wasn't established actually on taxi he was a newbie mm -hmm. uh, he had only done some movie parts that nobody remembered uh, except fans of his mm -hmm. um but judd hirsch was pretty well known at that time i mean he well did, known he now did, yeah, for he sure would, you know he, Oh, he was well known then. He got his name yeah. ahead of the show, which is really unheard of. Right. It's a Judd Hirsch in Taxi. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that anywhere else. It's always Taxi starring Judd Hirsch. Mm -hmm. Or Taxi, yeah, I've never seen it where it was Judd Hirsch in. Like mm -hmm. he was more important than the show. Mm -hmm. Or the main, or the draw he, that wants you wants you to make watch that show. Yeah, that's interesting. For Judd Hirsch, yeah. But so he never had a problem with I never, no one ever complained to us about directions but jim brooks was good about that in the same way i don't remember who originally told me give them directions don't give them too much somebody must mm -hmm. have told me that because i didn't know anything when i started mm -hmm. somebody must have said too many directions will will piss them off the director and the actors to <laughs> just do the ones that are important but that's what jim Bro jim uh jim brooks always put directions in when when they were important and uh so do i but i don't overdo it don't yeah overdo it. That's what you want, though, as a writer, is you want to have everyone on their on their toes, right? Ready to be like, you know, chucking spears at you. That seems to be yeah. the thing that you want is you want to piss people off so they know who's boss and that you can write them off the show, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. No, Did, you know, you know you, you're the in charge as the writer. You know, it's mm -hmm. a cool feeling. You, you know, they don't start you're when you walk on this on the set and then the, the, the AD says, oh, Ken's here. Let's get let's everybody in their place. Yeah. And you go, yeah. You know, nothing can go until the head writer's there, until the showrunner's there. They can't do shit. Did you ever get like people? Because actors do have, especially once they really establish a role and they understand a character, you know, the ins and outs. Did you have? Because we talked before about how, um, you know, um, Shelley Long and Ted Danson were wanting to have the baby and you know be sam's baby it couldn't be fraser's baby and then it, the whole thing it became like where you just hid the fact that she was even pregnant you know like they couldn't ever come to right. it did you ever get actors where like they like they have a take that's different than what you had interpreted or what you had you meant and then you take a second to listen to their different take yeah. and you're like oh okay that's actually yeah that does bring a different nuance to that 
particular scene or what have you. Absolutely. Maybe that's one of the reasons they did faithfully do our notes and our mm-hmm. script because if they said, I, I think I have a, I have a way that feels better for me mm-hmm. when I do this, uh, we always would say, well, show us. And they would show us. And if it was better, we would do it. You know, mm-hmm. I always wanted to make the best show possible. I, I never was one of these egos that I'm going to do it my way even if it's not as good. Mm-hmm. You, your name's on the on the episode, and you want that episode to be the best episode it can be, I, or at least that's how I've always felt. So, right. if an actor has a suggestion, yes. If he gets to the point where they're starting to do it on their own without asking first, mm-hmm. then you throw a spear. Then you know, the guy's dead. Yeah, yeah. Right out of the series. Yeah, dragging uh, out, kicking and screaming. <laughs> yeah, the writer's in control, I and mean, that's why I'm a TV writer. I want to be in control. And I started out wanting to run a show. I started out in the beginning saying, I'm a writer now, but I'm going to be the writer showrunner eventually. And I mm-hmm. did because, uh, you know, you want it to be yours. You want to be in control. But, but I, like... I don't want, Go ahead. Yeah, but I don't want to do it without the help of the experts. Right. I right. Like directing as well as the director or cinematography as well as cinematographer, the, you know, the acting as well as, yeah, well, in that case, I do know as well, so because no, yeah, <laughs> <But> that's <laughs> what I was gonna bring up, though. Yeah, anybody can act, you know. Like, yeah, my little girl, my child could act, but she was a little girl, she'd come here and say she didn't do it, and I believe her, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't do that, I didn't knock that thing over, and I went, right. oh, okay, I believe you. That's yeah. acting, yeah. Uh, There's a certain amount of acting to just being a person, you know. I mean, that's but that was actually that was interesting that you said that ego is a very important element of, you know, the creative process when you're working with other people. You have to be able to check your ego and put it aside so that you get the best yeah. product. And that's something that, um, you know, definitely new people may not really, not all new people, you know, but newer. Oh, I have a plane flying over. That's fantastic. Um, newer I people. Don't hear it. Oh, good, good. I hear it on my end. Yeah. Okay. Um, but newer people may not, I think like if you've, you've been doing it for a little bit or you have good examples of how to receive, um, information and feedback from people, then it does give you the ability to kind of ease up and, you know, cause you're, it's the final product that you're having a say over, but yeah, you know, if somebody yeah. has a great suggestion or a new take and it like really helps the whole piece. And it's like, why not take it, you know, take that, take advantage Absolutely. of that. But as a writer, showrunner, where you're in charge, you don't want to give them so much freedom that then they just start everything you do or give them that they want to reinterpret. And that gets to be out of out of hand. You've got to let them know that you, you're in control and that you, but you're open to suggestions. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's all, you know, you don't want them rewriting your script for you. you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, like, yeah, I, talk- I was going to say, we talked about this with Sam's baby and everything. You have people who have embodied the characters, so they have a feeling of how it goes. But the writer's job is to track all the characters over the course of the series, over the course of, you know, the season. So you have a clear idea, even though if you're, even if you're just going week by week by week, you don't, you know what I mean? You're making it up as you go along. You still have to track those emotional beats, those perspectives that they have. So that, that way it doesn't get, like you said, where there's too many chefs in the kitchen, because there is a reason why there's, you know, people doing pre- different departments. I mean, everybody has their own expertise. Yeah. I don't, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't understand. We talked about um, 
Sam and, and Diane, uh, the characters, and how Shelley and Ted became so, in, in, they put themselves so far into those characters, they were able, unable to be uh, emotionally distant to make mm -hmm. a good judgment for the series. Mm -hmm. Where they did not want it to be Sam, uh, Fraser's baby. Right. Um, they weren't thinking about the long run of the series, and that's the difference between a writer and an actor. The actor's thinking about that moment, that script, that episode, but the writer is thinking about the whole series and the whole integrity. Mm -hmm. Had Sam ha had a baby, it would change him enormously, and they couldn't see that. Mm -hmm. He could no longer be the flirt he was. He could no longer be a womanizer because he has a baby with a woman. It changes the dynamic. They couldn't see that. All they could see is in the moment, they were emotional as though they were Sam and Diane, not Ted and Shelley. Mm -hmm. They said, he's not going to have my, my, he's not going to have my baby, you know, about Frazier. And Sam's saying, yeah, definitely. He's, Frazier's not going to have her baby. And you're going, I, I want to say, you know, guys, step out of this for a minute. Look at, look at the bigger picture because you were not Sam and Diane. And mm -hmm. even if you were Sam and Diane, you'd look at the bigger picture. You'd say, Gosh, if 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 Sam were cheat were flirting and kind of cheating, and she has a baby at home, how would you feel about that, mm -hmm. Shelley? How would you feel about having his baby at home and he's out dating some woman? Mm -hmm. You'd feel like crap. You'd hate him. It changes the whole series. And when Fraser did actually end up, you know, he got with Lilith, and then they ended up having a child. It didn't mm -hmm. seem like there was any kind of conflict. It seemed very organic because their their personality types were you know, compatible with that storyline. It wasn't something. And they were going to be together. They were going to be together. It wasn't mm -hmm. like. Um, mm -hmm. Right, right. Sam and Diane were not going to be together. That was, that was the, the premise of the series was that these two people who are so unlike one another are in love with each other on a physical, sexual level, but emotionally are totally unfit for each other. They're totally a mismatch. Mm-hmm. And that was the series. And once you, once it has, once she has Ted's baby, once now I'm mixing them up. Once she has Sam's baby, right. Diane has Sam's baby. We would all hate Sam for still dating and still, still womanizing in front of her. You know, it's just like who flaunts that in front of the woman who's your, you know, your your baby's mother. You know, it's just you don't do that anymore. Right. So it'd be a different series. And even their flirting would be different. Flirting with the woman who already gave birth to your baby is different than flirting with some woman you want to have sex with that you haven't had sex with. I don't know why they didn't see that, but they didn't. They didn't yeah. They're, they were both, they're both smart people and they're both really wonderful actors. They both are. But yeah. they, they got so emotionally inside of those characters and, and then even then couldn't see beyond how those characters would react later on. They couldn't see that change the whole series. I mean, now you have like a baby mama scenario, you know, that's a very yeah. common phrase. So people kind of the accept that. Yeah, your baby mama, the, the woman you didn't marry who had your child is like a big story. That is a different series. That's a right. totally different series, right. you know? A, a guy who's a flirt and a woman who's very sexual but doesn't acknowledge it you know, what Diane was. She thought she was an intellectual, not an animal. Right. And yet she got animal-like animal about Sam because he was yeah. such a good-looking guy. And for some reason, she was really turned on to him. 
but they didn't connect at all intellectually, so there was no potential for a long-term relationship mm-hmm. beyond friends, it seems. Though I, there have been marriages based on a stupid and a smart character coming together, but it's a different, it's a different story. It's mm-hmm. all, all, they wanted to change the series because she didn't want to have Fraser's baby, so we hit her crazy. Shelly was pregnant, and we had to then hide her pregnancy for the whole year, we, uh, the remaining seven months or whatever she had left, eight months, uh, because they wouldn't they wouldn't deal with her pregnancy in the series. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a very weird thing hiding her pregnancy. We did it in creative ways, but some of it some of it was almost silly. We had her stuck in the heating vent one episode. I don't remember why she went into the heating vent. Right. How did we get her into the heat? I, 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 I'm sure I can sit down and figure out a way, but offhand, I can't think of how she gets stuck in the heat. I think she was trapped in the office. Was she trapped in the office and was trying to get out or something? Like the office was locked? Talking to the vent, through the yeah. office? Yeah. One, one question I had, though, like, because you have, um, you know, a lot of traditional sitcoms, for example, are family-oriented. But this particular, you've worked on a couple of shows that are ensemble cast. And so yeah. it's a it's a family within the people that are involved, but you know. So I don't. Do you think about it the same way? It's easier. No, it's yeah. It's easy. It was easier to hide her. She ended up for the most of that season being just one of the characters, and Sam became the star of the show. And she was glad to do that because she didn't want to have Frazier as a baby. Mm-hmm. So she rather she gave up being the star of the show basically because we just couldn't feature her as much as we did when she was able to stand outside of, not be inside of them. Yeah. Um, sometimes she'd just wear a big parka. Sometimes she would hold her delivery tray up high enough to cover her midriff. There, there are ways to hide it, but it was crappy. It would have been so good if they would have been cooperative and we could have made it Fraser's baby. It would have created great tension between Sam and her, except... Once she had Fraser's baby, Sam couldn't be as flirty with her even because she's a baby mama, you know, mm-hmm. with somebody else's child. So it would change things too. But whatever. Rhea got pregnant twice during this run of yeah. series, and both times we showed it because yeah. she had no problems with with that. You can start to see it coming on though, because um, you know there are like more. I think they were pregnant at the same time at one point, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And so you see, like, them holding a lot of trays, standing just outside yeah. the bar, you know what I mean? Like, you know, there was always this way to yeah. secure things. How do you deal with an ensemble cast where you have to have, um, you have to give almost, you know, a certain amount of screen time to all these different characters? And plus, Cheers had, like, interactive characters that would come and go, yeah. and, and then you're, tra- you're tracking these different storylines. How do you, how is that, how do you do that, <laughs> basically? It's 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 a little difficult. You yeah. you you don't want to just throw somebody a line and just look like you just threw somebody a line to keep them alive. So you have yeah. to have. Sometimes we would resolve that with subplots. We'd have characters who weren't involved much in the main story would have a subplot. That was usually the way we did did mm-hmm. it. So Sam and and Diane had a very strong story where they're getting together, and it took up most of the screen time. We'd have to have a really strong subplot that involved Norm and 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 uh, Cliff and uh, Carla, mm-hmm. you always had to keep them alive. You couldn't say, well, this week I'm not even going to do them. I'm going to, you know, we don't need them. We'll have a line here and there. And 
you can't do that. For one, you have the, the actors' egos, mm-hmm. and 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 secondly, you have um, fan base who some like different characters, and you don't want to cut their character out for an episode. So uh, you had it, it involved a little extra work, but it's not as hard as you would think because you can subplots always could serve that purpose of giving lines to uh, somebody who's not actively involved in the story. But you but had that, to keep them alive. We always called it that. We said. We always call it keeping your uh, your whole keeping your cast alive. Mm-hmm. So then, alive. and you can give them like those, um, you know, like you said, you don't want to just give them a line so that, that way they are involved in the shoot. And, and as an actor, I don't know if you'd want to just show up all the time to have one or two lines, and you don't really get to like, yeah. you know, and um, you don't really get to envelop the character, but. You know, that does help sometimes when you have like Carla walks by and she has a snide comment or coach says something oh, yeah, yeah. off the wall. She did that all the time in, in the series. If she had enough snide comments just passing by to give her enough lines, she might not even be in the subplot. It might be the subplot is just Norm and Cliff and she's just saying a lot of shots of Sam and Diane and their main story and shots mm-hmm. of Cliff and, and Norm and their story. Yes. Yeah. It's just a balance. You just keep it in your head. You, you look at it. You look at the script. And say, oh, Carla's not in here much. We better give her something to do. She's not in the subplot or the plot. Then you're in trouble unless you come up with a lot of clever passing lines, which you can do. That's another way to do it. So, it it's got to be unique way to, though, do it. Um, to have like a real Pearlman where she she knows how to have that tone, that pitch, you know, to be mean, but where it's funny, it doesn't seem mean, you know, because a lot of people yeah. sometimes they do mean and it doesn't come off right, you know, like. Yeah, you know, her mean was never scary, even though she was kind of vile. Mm-hmm. It was never scary. I've seen people when they're mean are scary, even when they're not raising their voice. They're just scary. And she and and her hubby, uh, Danny DeVito, played basically the same character of different genders, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on Taxi, Louis was like that. In spite of his meanness, you never really felt endangered by him you never really feel you, you love the guy and i used to think it was because he was so small that mm-hmm. you yeah, kind of felt some sympathy for him and yeah she was equally small they're both about right. they're both under five feet or just at five feet they're both very short for for uh for actors for actors yeah i'm gonna say because <laughs> much shorter they would be little people and those are different parts you know yeah. they're actors too they're little people who are very good actors but they're those are different parts usually and usually parts involve somehow some mention or some some indirect reference to their size and we never really talk much about the size of those characters we let it just play out for itself and they, they were about five foot which is just about you know the range where much shorter it would be different parts. I, I you know, I think. Yeah. Um. I, I never say anything about Danny's size. Never. Danny did. I mean, the, the actor did. You know, speech he made in an episode that's based on a true event that happened to Danny DeVito. Mm-hmm. And and when we were looking for the one where he sees Elaine in the bathroom, it's a terrible thing that he did. He made a hole in the in the, in the door so he could see into the stall. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so awful that we had to have something to balance it. Uh, so we asked Danny, he said, Danny, we don't want to do anything about, we said this, we don't want to do anything about your size, hmm. uh, but we need something that makes us have sympathy for you 
based on uh, we need a lot of sympathy for you to get you past this this thing that happened. And Danny's one who said, well, it used to be very hard for me to buy clothes because I had to go to the chubby boys section. Mm -hmm. And he said, so they like them. You know, kids are mean sometimes. You know, we always say of kids being sweet and innocent. On the other hand, they can be meaner than adults, you know, in mm -hmm. some ways. And the kids will torment other kids who have defects. It's terrible. They do. They, they lack they social grace, you know. They lack that kind of, you know, uh, you know that basically social grace. They they don't have the they haven't been taught yet to, you know, that cancel culture is a real thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Danny told the story about he going to that section, and all the kids would make fun of him because he was an adult. He was not a child. And he's buying in a child in a, in a boy section. Uh, and um, and in the chubby part, because he was kind of on the heavy side for his size, too. And he said that was so demeaning, so awful, and humiliating, and violating your your space or your privacy, mm -hmm. which is exactly what he had done to Elaine. Mm -hmm. So that it worked great. We said, oh, great. That's a great story, Danny. Can we use it? And he said, absolutely. But you knew going in that, like, oh, this is a touchy moment here so we have to try to offset that with some type of like you said sympathy for the character so there's yeah and it almost you know i don't know like how it would play today you know like that kind of thing there's still um an important point about that is we we had written something to offset what he had done but it mm -hmm. wasn't strong enough when we saw it playing on its feet that's mm -hmm. why danny came in with his suggestion it wasn't like we this is before it was written and we said to danny how are we going to write this thing it had been written, and there was something there that made Danny look vulnerable when he was talking to Elaine, and she wouldn't forgive him. And then he had to say, she, when she said, you don't know what I, what you put me through, and he, and he had to say, yes, I do. And everybody said, you don't. And then he had this great thing and said, oh, yeah, he, he does know. Mm -hmm. um, we had one in there, but it just wasn't very strong compared to this thing of Danny. Well, you know, we saw it. We said, it's not strong enough. It's not good enough. We need something more embarrassing. But we didn't want to deal with Danny's size or, or his physical mm -hmm. um, areas that he might have been picked on as a kid or as an adult or whatever. So we didn't want to go there. And we're doing it on personality. And personality is not working. Mm -hmm. So Danny told us and gave us permission to do something about something. He had no control over his size. Was that like to avoid like a cheap jab or something, you know, too, being too on the nose, too obvious? You know that you didn't want to like. I think we we didn't want to do it out of sense of humanity. You were talking about social grace a moment ago because we had enough social grace to not just throw a page or a few pages down on the set that make fun of his size when Danny might still be very sensitive about that. So we mm. didn't want to do that. So we called him in our office and we said, "Look, we got this problem. We didn't say his size or anything. We got this problem. The scene is is not making you vulnerable enough when when we need you to be almost." or as vulnerable as Elaine so that she can understand that you understand and then you can have this moment of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And then he, he came up with this thing because mm -hmm. he is clearly in his mind, uh, one of the most humiliating times in his life is when he has to go out and buy clothes. Well, now he has a buyer. He doesn't have to go out and buy clothes anymore. Many mm -hmm. famous, so nobody would care. Mm -hmm. But when he was a young man, he wasn't that young. He didn't get his first break until taxi. He was already in his 40s. Mm. He's done some very small movie parts 
he just had made it as an actor until Patsy made him a superstar. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to do things on his own with his own talent and merit that he mm-hmm. said were on that level of superstardom. But he could have very easily found his whole life without ever be, being a professional actor or yeah. a, a money-making professional actor because he did do stage stuff. I wonder, like, he did. I wonder if psychologically right. there's like something to that, that, that stature, you know, him having a small stature, he can be mean. It's like a chihuahua, you know, you'll tolerate something from a chihuahua um, that Absolutely. you wouldn't tolerate from a, you know, a great, maybe a great Dane or whatever, you know, one of the bigger animals, you know, a horse, if you had a horse that was like, you know, I agree with you. I think that's it. I like think that. what happened was, I think size is very important in that character and in his ability to do nasty, mean stuff. Danny didn't pull back as much on his nasty meanness as, as Carla did. Carla did nasty mean and somehow seemed vulnerable. Danny's vulnerability didn't come from his language because Danny really nailed things hard. You know, he that was part of the, the fun of that character is he was really mean. I mean hard mean, but he was small. And I think that's part of who you are. You know, as an actor, you use the whole tool, you know, every part of it, you know, part of it is your size or your size or your look. You could be handsome and you've got certain parts you play as handsome. You can't play great comedy parts usually, but mm-hmm. there are some handsome people who do comedy, but not, not as many. Uh, or you could be homely, in which case you don't play any leading man parts. Mm-hmm. Nothing you can do about that except make the most of it, you know? Yeah, so like when he was, um, you know, cast against Arnold Schwarzenegger and Twins, you know, that's another example where he kind of, um, and like I said, it's not that he's typecast, his characters are very different. He just knows how to use that portion in his toolbox to, you know, emphasize the character uh, and what the character is going through. But Arnold Schwarzenegger was like a much more affable person, you know, he was kind of in that movie in particular. you know, he was much more affable, much more easy to get along with, kind of charismatic and likable. Whereas, um, but you empathize more with Danny DeVito's mm-hmm. character. Absolutely, because of his size. Mm-hmm. And size is one of your tools. I mean, you use it. You know, we mm-hmm. all have gifts. Some of them seem like, some of our gifts seem like, they're not gifts, they seem like curses. Perhaps mm-hmm. Danny all his life, when he was younger, probably hated that he was so short. But being short allowed him to play something that, was unique and, and made him a superstar. Mm-hmm. So in a way, he owes part of his success to his total toolbox. You use the word toolbox. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. The toolbox. I was saying the tool like it's one thing, but you're right. It's a toolbox of all these things. And one of the things in his toolbox is size. Mm-hmm. You pull that out, they give you a sympathy card, man. It's not cheap. It's being smart. It's figuring out. If you're really pretty, use that smile, that perfect smile you have. Uh, Shelly had a great smile. Shelly Long had a great smile. She was a little too thin, small-chested, uh, small-waisted, and lots of things that you might find attractive. But I thought she had a killer smile, and she also had a killer personality uh, on her own. And that played through with Diane when Diane wasn't being too um, elitist about her intellect. Mm-hmm. Um, it was there. Shelly was very attractive, but she she knew what parts worked. You know, she knew what parts made her attractive, and a lot of it was knowing that smile or that little grin or that smirk. She just had great tools in, in those expressions. She had great expressions. But that's also playing against opposites, right? Because she's attractive and she's, you know, like not totally a blonde, but she's not like, you know, 
you could easily dismiss her as maybe like a school mom or a librarian or something like that. So it, it fits with her character, but she is playing opposite. And she's also striving to be intellectual, you know, beyond her own, um, yeah. you know, capabilities. Beyond what her, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was part of the fun of it was she wasn't as smart as she thought she was. Right. She was smart. I mean, no doubt about it. The character was, was written to be smart, but she thought she was smarter. And she, that's why she liked to show off her her education or her, she was uh, erudite because she, mm-hmm. um, she, that that was not her charm. That was one of her deficits. That was one of the things that made her, but we could laugh at her for that. Mm-hmm. And we could laugh at her for that because she's pretty. And that's another right. we talked about that before. If you're going to laugh at somebody for their defects, then there better be something that, that saves them. So you're not just laughing at somebody who's down on the ground. You don't want to kick somebody who's down. Mm-hmm. And so with like with Reverend Jim, he was the happiest guy in the in the garage. He's the only guy in the garage who's going to be truly happy. Mm-hmm. Um, Rieger, Alex Rieger used to claim that he was the only one who, he was the only one to say he was truly a taxi driver until Reverend Jim came. And he was also truly a taxi driver, but he was joyful about it. And Alex was just accepting of it. Yeah. That was, so we could laugh at Chris, Christopher Lloyd's um, portrayal because he didn't see anything in our laughter or, or our inability to, to understand what he's saying as hurtful. He just, he just dealt with it. You know, mm-hmm. it was all fun for him. And he was the most together guy in the place in mm-hmm. a way. So yeah, that's what I'll, we had to do. Judge, you know, Judd Hirsch's character too is um, also like the moral compass for the show, basically. You know, like he had. The, I remember there was an episode where there was a guy that was abusing his Great Dane when he was back in the, oh, in the yeah, back uh-huh. of the car, and he really, you know, he ended up taking the Great Dane, and then everybody stood up for him at the very end. You know, so he, yeah, the owner yeah, couldn't yeah. come back and take the Great Dane, and that you know that kind of. There is, a, you know, we talked about this a little bit last time about the mor- moral play, you know, going on with shows and whether or not it's emphasized. And you you said, like, with Coach's Daughter, that was a particular slant that you were going for. But Jim Brooks had also told you, like, there's only so many episodes in a season that you're going to do that with. You know, it's not always something that you're going to go for every single show, you know. Right. So that's pretty yeah otherwise you're doing a show about love. they used to do that the early shows I, I you know leave it to beaver and right old old shows used to have a moral for every story every story right. was a lesson yeah uh but yeah jim would always say yeah I, I jim hated lessons no lessons no kindness from louie all these things he would rule out you know the guy that the the prostitute with the golden heart all that stuff is it, those are cliche characters right right so right. he wanted louie to be pure bad because you rarely see that um and when it is done it's not usually done well and, and louie could be purely bad and still it just kind of felt oh he's had a hard life people have mm-hmm. been abusive to him all his life give him a break give him mm-hmm. some slack it was perfect perfect casting but if he, he was like played, somebody that was big or something like that that would seem threatening you might not have that same leeway for that character like if norm was well a you jerk, know what you know something yeah, like that it would be different danny's part was supposed to be played by norm by an overweight normal size uh guy with an irish accent hmm. that was how it was written originally 
this guy's all lovable curmudgeon. But he all he do these mean things. Yeah, uh, somebody say, hey, the tires are. I just noticed the trailer and the tires are low on number so and so. Is we do take out cars with low, with with bad tread. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he would still do that kind of stuff. And Louis would do like really snarky. This guy would do with his kind of sweet uh, Irish accent and be kind of an older big guy and would say, you're taking out cars with bad tread. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And Somehow that his lovability made it okay. So that's how they wrote it. They made a guy who was just looked physically and sounded lovable and still did these terrible things. Mm-hmm. That was the offset of that. Mm-hmm. Then Danny came in and they said, Shit, we don't have he doesn't have to sweet talk anybody. He's just gonna be mean all the time. But he's small, so we don't want to pick on him. We don't want to fight back. He's, mm-hmm. you know, you want to get somebody smaller. Than he kind of seems like a quintessential New Yorker, though. Also, that's the way you kind of read him. You know, like because he is so, at least like at that time, and especially for the '70s, because um, the '70s and the '80s were really volatile for Taxi. I mean, not Taxi, but for New York. You know, you had this uh-huh. very rugged kind of New Yorker attitude. Not like you didn't in the '90s and the 2000s, but that was more of like a hip hop rugged, whereas everybody seemed rugged in the seventies and eighties. You know what I mean? So yeah, it, it seemed that's why New York, New York. If I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. Or yeah, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. Then that's fine. Um, yeah, because New York was a hard city. Mm-hmm. I, I I think like all major uh, metropolis cities are hard now. I mean, LA is a hard city. LA is a hard city. It used to be seen as a layback city. Uh, people are awfully tough on people here, and people shoot each other on the freeways and stuff. Yeah, LA is, is, is there a city? Is there a city where you just go and kind of lay back? I was gonna say Chicago, but that's probably because I've idealized Chicago, and it's one of the only big cities that I've been to where I haven't really lived in. I just visited, you know. Uh-huh. But San Francisco's definitely got like. A real cool guy culture. Everybody. Yeah, that's like, true. San Francisco's yeah. kind of peaceful. Yeah, San Francisco's a good example. You, you don't think of hostility in San Francisco. Oh, I was actually saying yeah. like, yeah, I think it is kind of hostile, San Francisco. Oh, you, you know? do? I think San Francisco's <laughs> not being hostile. See, there we go. It's all subjective. I think of San Francisco compared to L.A. that they, they have such liberal attitudes. You know, their yeah. their policies that are so liberal. They're so human oriented you know it's humanity it's yeah there's a lot of homelessness but they do awful like things get... there's a lot of homelessness i i was there when a homeless guy went into a pizza place and stabbed somebody to death so they didn't give him a free pizza so it's not all sweet and lovely san francisco um, right yeah 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 oh crazy stuff happens i've seen some craziness go down yeah. i've seen some craziness go down in new york i mean i think like because i'm in my car all the time maybe i didn't notice it so much in la but you know like for sure um San Francisco and New York have a, a real ruggedness. Yeah. There, you know? But San Francisco, I always thought it was being, because of their liberal attitudes, I always thought of them being open and forgiving. But people are people. You put a lot of people together in a small space and they yeah. start picking on each other. They start doing things to each other. It's just, yeah. But it is I like that Sardine thing. You know, like you get all these people crammed together and it's like you're going to get, like, one of the things that I noticed, like when I went to New York, is in my mind when before I went to New York, I had always thought that, you know, I was trained to believe that white people didn't like Jews, blacks, 
and Asians, you know what I mean? And then when I went to New York, I realized, um, you know, there's so many diverse cultures there that um, the white people didn't like Russians, um, people from the Eastern Bloc, uh, you know, like Ukrainians, you know, like they had like all, they didn't like the Irish, they didn't like the Scottish, and it was like, they didn't like anyone, you know, I didn't realize that there were so many differentiations. I just thought like, yeah. oh, they're all in the same category as far as I know, but you know, like they yeah. broke it down to territories, you know? Not yeah, there's there's some people who hate people for just being different, and yeah, and I know people. I mean, we've said we we've talked a little bit about using race and it shows that there's certain things you can't do that. You know, but like a lot of you think about a lot of white prejudice is really scary. But then there are people. I'm a white guy, and I'm I'm probably one of the least prejudiced people I know. I mean, I'm open to any. Anybody yeah, I mean, I'm black and white, you know? so somebody was yeah. not that prejudice going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so it exists. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I feel so, like white people so, actually get a bad rep, too. You know, like, not everybody well, is, you know, just because you're white doesn't mean you have all the advantages, you know? Like, you may be able to take advantage of certain advantages, but in the long run, there's just as many poor, uneducated not having, you know, they can't take advantages, can't, no upper mobility, basically, is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, no upper mobility. Usually that comes from people who are from, from um, um, backgrounds that where they didn't have the educational opportunities or where they didn't have social advancement opportunities, like the chances at better jobs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Once they're down, they're down. It's really hard to escape that, whether mm-hmm. you're white or black or, or anything. When you're in that arena, it's a hard escape, or just from what I know. Now, I haven't been there myself, so I don't know. From people I know that I've spoken to and things I've read, it's, it's, it seems like it's really a hard escape. Yeah. Like, when you're in San Francisco, I mean, you can probably speak to this, and definitely L.A., too. There's uh, homeless white people, you know? Like, I know it's not the thing to say right now because we have such a fervor for, like, you know, the complete opposite with the BLM movement and everything and now the Asian things, but it doesn't strike with reality. Reality is like, you go to San Francisco, you see homelessness of all types and yeah. it doesn't, it's not, um, there's not as much discretion there as you would think, be, you know, being told to us all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot. I of, don't like, know what that is. I think that, um, you know, it's also just numbers. I mean, like there's, there are more white people than there are other groups because there just were the history of the country that, so there's more, so when you see more, you see an equal number of homeless people who are white, it's still a much smaller percentage of their population. So mm-hmm. they're really not being as oppressed as much. They're being as oppressed as much as, as say the average black person. There'd be many more white homeless people than we see, but mm-hmm. there are homeless people of all uh, diversities, all you know, race and backgrounds, whatever. But it's awful no matter what, and in San Francisco, it's worse than ever. And I don't know how you solve that. I mean, it's, it's just awful. It's awful for everybody. It's awful for the homeless people. And it's awful for the people who have to deal with the homeless people. I mean, maybe that's not politically correct to say, but it's awful for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. homelessness affects everybody. And so why don't we solve it already? I don't understand why we haven't been able to solve certain of our own domestic problems that seem like they're solvable. But then after this last election, they do think solvable. Who yeah. or what? I see. Oh man, it is. It is not solvable because 
you can't get two intelligent people of different parties in the same room and get them to agree on almost anything. Um, crap. I don't know how you're ever going to resolve any of these issues now because I don't know how you're going to get enough people to agree. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, I feel like it's more, it's really more class. Race is just a, a smokescreen, you know what I mean, for classism. You know, that's kind of how I take it. But, you know, what yeah. I was thinking about with the stature thing in terms of like being able to be mean or like that kind of thing, it's like you, it kind of made me think like, oh, you have, you should embrace your disadvantages. You know what I mean? Like, and that kind of ties into what we're talking about, but, it, you know, that's, more political and this is in terms of like the you know as a writer like understanding like who to put in different parts like you you can like have people who do know how to embrace their 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 disadvantage like that's an advantage actually it's a, it was an advantage that he was short you know it helped probably help the story like you know evolve it's oh his, his shortness was so great for the series for his character for his career yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing to say, but being short was is probably the greatest asset he was given mm -hmm. his gift from God to be short. And he'd say, "Why did you give me this curse?" And mm -hmm. the voice would say, "Well, just wait. Yeah. Just wait. You're going to see why." Like and Peter Dinklage. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 no. It's fine. I was just thinking. Of, yeah, I mean, it's just like Danny was able to take what we all would consider a handicap or a mm -hmm. disability and turn it into an advantage and a, a blessing. And, and it's true. And he's a, he, he just has, he has a good life. He has uh, a, a normal outside life with as much as a famous person can have a normal outside life. Right. Um, and, and a rich famous person. So there's two things that affect him differently now, but, uh, I don't think Danny would, would you think if somebody said to Danny, you could have been tall and, and handsome or who you are, which would you choose? Danny would choose who he is in a, in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, you know, we were, we talked about this before and I couldn't think of the actor's name, Peter Dinklage, who was in, uh, he played Tyrion in Game of Thrones. He was also in uh, uh -huh. Death at a Funeral. Like, yeah. you know, people would say, oh, that's a disadvantage. You know, him being a little person is a disadvantage, but when you watch him act, he's a phenomenal actor. I mean, his he facial is. expressions and just the way he draws you in, it's, it's next level. I mean, it's better than even people who would be considered like not to not have that disadvantage, you know? So, but it worked yeah. for him and in his career. It worked for him in, in the kind of parts he got, but he's, he's such a good actor. I think yeah. he might've made it at any size, Yeah. you know, cause he's really got all, but then, his personality was created partially by the probably the, the, the abuse he got because of his size must right. have affected him in some way. Sure. It probably comes out in his acting, whatever. He's a wonderful actor. He gets parts that work for his size and he's doing great, but I'm sure there for every one like of, of him, there's all these little people who can't get work because there aren't enough parts written for little people. So. Sure. Yeah, and that's the thing too. But you, you know, here, I, I was actually thinking about this when you were when you were saying that is Danny DeVito's part in uh, Taxi. It wasn't written for a little person, or he's not a little mm. person, but you know, he's. Yeah, I don't know how they small, what the cutoff person, is yeah. or whatever. You know what I mean? But I don't want to get too political in the in the size <laughs> no, differentiation. You know, I don't know the measurements, but in terms of, uh, but he stole the show. He he was able to um, be what the character needed to move the story forward and that's the other right, thing without ever saying it the moment where 
Bob Keats used to say the moment he knew Taxi was going to be a monster hit was when Danny stepped down from his cage mm-hmm. after giving everybody hell from the cage, mm-hmm. and he can't tell. Mm-hmm. And, and he was still funny, but yeah. he steps down from that thing, and you see his size. Bob said, oh, this is going to be, he's going to be the star of the show, and it's going to be a big hit. Yeah. And and it was exactly true. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's like, you know, like Carla, like we said, she's, she's a smaller stature woman, so she can... That helps you know, her. That helps her. If Norm had come in and he's swinging his, you know, like, you know, swinging his, uh, you know, balls around and he's like all mean and, you know what I mean? It, it's it's a different kind of show. It's a different character. He has to play the lovable guy because... Yes, because he's, a, he's big a big guy. guy. He's a big guy picking on people. Yeah. Wouldn't work. Wouldn't yeah. work. We have a general sense of like right and wrong, you know, embedded in us, I think. And we're taught some of it also. And everybody has a different yeah. idea about it. But, you know, um, that's very interesting. The lovable giant. People like a lovable giant, you know. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They love a lovable giant. Yeah. yeah. A big guy. They love him more. A big guy who could knock the shit out of you, who is instead very gentle and peaceful. And, yeah. and is. That's almost a cliche character, but sure. it, it, it always works. Mm-hmm. But there, I haven't yet seen any more Danny DeVitos. I haven't seen any more yet yet smaller men who are playing these really nasty characters. And I think it's a wonderful character. I think somebody should be doing that. Yeah, and we, we talked about this before, too, like how you have at least like four or five must-haves for – and it's not like a must-have, but you go – like you approach it this way. You have a dumb character. You have a – smart character you have an attractive character and a mean character and like how their interplay is you know is very um and you could look you can track that across different shows you know what i mean and see like okay yeah this is very interesting like there's yeah there's the mean person there's the attractive person there's the stupid person i don't like to call them dumb i know everybody does but yeah it's me dumb means something else but means you're a scumbag you know yeah (laughs) (laughs) when i but when i say dumb if I say stupid, people get offended by stupid. They prefer I say dumb. And I say, yeah, but dumb is kind of a derogatory. It became derogatory because of the way people were using it. So I don't like to use it. Mm-hmm. They use dumb as being stupid, and dumb isn't stupid at all originally. Yeah. It wasn't stupid at all. It was about an ability to speak. But um, the language has gotten so adulterated. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, words that mean other things. Now, you can't say. I used to love the Flintstones, and they used to say, we're going to have a gay old time. That was in their song. Yeah. If you say that today, you expect a lot of gay people, a lot of, um, you know, homosexual joke or story or whatever, but the, the gay didn't mean anything then. Mm-hmm. In that short period of time, the word gay has completely changed. Well, if you use the word gay in, in, in anything now, the first thought I think people have is a gay man, you know, mm-hmm. a, gay, a homosexual man. Mm-hmm. Uh your first thought when you're gay, you don't want to think of somebody just happy and lighthearted and all that. But it used to be, even when I was a kid, somebody could say, you know, oh, hey, you're gay. You know, what's going on? Mm-hmm. You'd say, oh, I don't know, I just woke up feeling, you know, good. But you can't say that anymore. You couldn't say it in dialogue even because somebody would hesitate for a moment. What do you mean? Why Why did you say I'm gay? You know? Mm-hmm. you know, so I'm just saying the language keeps changing. What? Let's change how rainbow rainbow is changing and, mm-hmm. and the colors of a rainbow are changing because of the gay movement. Mm-hmm. Black is different means something different now. There was a time when black, when black people didn't want to be called black, they felt that was derogatory. Maybe it was, I don't know. 
Um, now it's it's been completely turned around. And white, I don't like being called white because white to me is a derogatory term. Yeah, I mean it all. I mean, you know, I think it's all context, like how somebody's meaning it, you know, and why why the person what the superiority level is of the person who's you know stating it or whatever. But there was a lot of homosexual characters in shows, you know. It wasn't now everything is on the nose, you know. That's the thing that there's not a, like a subtlety. You know what I mean? It's a very different kind of. Um, oh yeah, there were it. homosexual characters who played, uh, like they still hadn't come out of the closet, kind of mm-hmm. homosexual in the old in the old shows. But mm-hmm. today, people say they're gay and they're proud of it, and rightly so, and and they play that part. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we didn't see much of that uh, when I was a kid. We didn't see. We saw gay people on on television and movies playing that those kind of characteristics that we would stereotypically associated with gay people uh, and not say it, not, mm-hmm. not acknowledge the person was gay. So the, the language has changed and, the, and our perception and our politically correct areas have changed. And then some haven't, you know, it's like, um, there's still prejudice today that will never be in, that I can see, I hope they will. I hope somehow some of them will end, but People don't like people who who are so different, who look different and talk different, have different backgrounds. And not, again, just some. I mm-hmm. I'm a person who loves all the differences. You know, I love being in a in a party where there's all kinds of people. There's people of different races, people of different uh, ethnic backgrounds, people of uh, different sexual orientation. I mean, each person brings something different. You know, but and we, we can do that more on TV than we ever did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now it's not a faux pas, you know, but that was like the basic premise of Jack Tripper, you know, being able to live with two girls. And Mr. Furley wasn't really, he was right, questioning as to why he was there, you know, because he didn't want to. You're right, you're right. As if you couldn't just yeah. co-inhabit a space with, and be heterosexual yeah. and just live yeah. with two women, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have to be something torrid, you know. And I bet if you looked at old episodes of, of Three's Company, there would be really offensive stuff about gay sure. men. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mr. Furley used to wear always, the scarf. It was kind of ambiguous, you know. You didn't really. Know that's the weird part. He yeah. he played gay, but he was prejudiced against mm-hmm. against uh, Jack because he thought Jack was gay. Right. Um, I mean, and you he had a like, blonde character, you know, like that wouldn't fly, you know, like people would feel slighted about. Yeah, that. yeah. Why did why did you the ditzy blonde? Yeah, yeah. You that's true. You explain they used to be our lead-in on Taxi, and they used to get huge ratings, and we'd always fall off a little bit of Taxi. <laughs> and then, then uh, Jim Brooks offended everybody at ABC with his lack of uh, of social grace for them. He wouldn't allow them to participate at all. Mm-hmm. He said, "We gotta get rid of this guy." You know, TV's a lot of the TV's about power, and mm-hmm. these guys who were running ABC said, "Why are we letting this guy with one show on the air?" you know, kick us around and tell us what we can and can't do it. It's, you know, it's not worth it. Let's get rid of the show. And everybody said, I'm, I'm looking behind the scenes. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure this is what happened. The people said, we can't cancel it. It's our number one critically acclaimed show in that regard. Uh, it gets nominated and has won four consecutive years as the best comedy on the air. We can't cancel it or we'll get a lot of heat. They'll want to know why we cancel it. We can't do it because of power. Mm-hmm. So what did they do? They moved us into a terrible time slot. Mm-hmm. That was their way of getting rid of us. Now take a whole year now, but they won't get any heat for it when they cancel us for bad ratings. Which is exactly what they did. 
They put us in the worst time slot they had, took us away from Three's Company, where we had a big lead in, mm-hmm. put us in the worst time slot they had on the air in primetime TV, and otherwise it'd be too obvious, and said, well, we want to build that time slot. But everybody knows that time slot has never been built. It's impossible to build until now where people can use these, stream it at home or record it. In those days, you couldn't record it. You had to watch it where it was. Mm-hmm. And Taxi was in the wor- world's worst time slot, and our ratings just fell right off the charts. We went from the in top 10 to like some probably toward the bottom third of, of, of ratings. Mm. And it canceled us for bad ratings. That's crazy. So it was like a setup. And you would think well, like definitely set up. You would think they would like, but maybe it's because, I was gonna say you would think that they would just start to stamp down on you with notes, you know. And like we were gonna, we were talking a little bit about notes earlier, but um, you know, a lot of people dread notes, and sometimes they can be helpful because it can, you know, help fix a problem that you can't see because everybody's so involved. But I do. I like notes. I like yeah. hearing notes. Doesn't mean I'm gonna do them, or doesn't mean I'm gonna do them exactly as they were given, but. Right. I like notes. They're usually helpful to make you think about something. You know, yeah. They help stimulate the brain. No, if they'd given us harder and harder notes and made them, like you said, stand down a little bit, honestly, Jim would have ignored them anyhow. Jim didn't read their notes. Hmm. Jim told me when I was running this show I not to read their notes, not to read their memos, not to read anything from the network. And one time, somebody from the network, some sneaky ass, <laughs> called me directly not going through Jim because I was running the show then though the new Jim still was calling the shots ultimately mm-hmm. yeah uh, though he wasn't running the show day to day he was you know you didn't do anything Jim didn't like yeah and I sent they called me and say hey Kim we don't know what shows are coming up but you send us an, an update of the of the episodes you have in development I said sure I was a showrunner so I sent him a list of all the shows we hadn't we were developing the ideas for that we hadn't shot yet and when Jim and Ed Weinberger, Jim Brooks, Ed Weinberger, found out, mm-hmm. they they just beat me up over it. They they were furious that I gave ABC a hint of what we were doing. Nowadays, that's uh, got, yeah, that's what got us canceled. Their attitudes were got us canceled. My, what I did, give them a hint, and they would have been satisfied with that. We'd thrown them a bone once in a while. They wouldn't mm-hmm. have put it, pulled us out of Three's company and stuck us in the dungeon, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I was I was going to say, like, nowadays, you know, they've orchestrated it in such a way to where you, you have, like, all these preliminary things where you you have to check with everybody. You don't get that mm-hmm. buffer, you know what I mean? And and I don't – does it make a show better to have, you know, all these people put – you know, because you can't say scumbag or something like that, you know, like, you know, things of that nature, you know, like – now it's weird because cancel culture is really huge but at the same time you can be completely brazen about who a character is you know what i mean like you can stay and everything is so on the nose there's not a lot of subtlety and subtext and you know it's a different kind of world a lot of emotions on the table and kind of you know that kind yeah, of thing. and sexuality yeah not just not just uh uh homosexual differences but uh heterosexual sexuality has had a revolution for television you couldn't have two people sleep in the same bed who were husband and wife uh when i started and now people talk about sex and specifically about there's certain words they can't say on networks but they say what they do those parts do and and they talk about the sexuality 
in graphic detail that sometimes are is basically cringe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. It's a bit much, you know. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, it's so like, it's what does this have to do with the show? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it just shows the about people's sexuality. The network loves that stuff. That's what pisses me off. That's when it's, you get a lot of bad notes from networks that make it sexier, make it hotter, make it. And you want to say, what about substance? What about depth? I've never gotten a note from a network about this needs more depth. This needs yeah. more thought. This needs more uh, care. It's always sexy, hotter. <laughs> you never got that note. Like, hey, we need a little bit more. Uh, you know, what if the characters had a little bit more. Um, yeah, let's evolution. slow it down and have a little lamp. Let's slow it down and have a little moment of empathy here. Yeah, yeah. you never get that from the network. No, that's hilarious. Never. That's actually very telling, though, of like what it is. You know, I mean, if, if, what is it that they're driving for? You know what I mean? Like, what's the numbers? Purpose? Yeah, numbers. They, they're not about artists, and, and those people who are network executives who now will never hire me because I'm saying this uh, are still. I'm going to say it that. They they want their job is to sell shows, not make great shows. And they they make great shows once in a while that sell the network. Yeah. It's all about selling, 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 sell the show, sell the network, make money, 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 money. But other people in other businesses that are all about making money, nobody attacks them. The problem here is we think we're artists, or I believe we are artists on the, right. the on the ground level who are actually doing the shows, and these people are the ones who pay our salaries. So without them, we don't have a job. So yeah. you can't eliminate them. But then you can't really, though I'm criticizing them on one hand, on the other hand, I'm saying somebody's got to do that awful job of, of selling our product. And selling products is a hard thing. And people lie and, and push it up. And it's very easy for them to say, look, this will sell, this will sell, this will sell. And you say, yeah, but, but is it good for the show? And usually people get in those jobs about sell, 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 sell. Don't stop to think about is this good for the show or is this good is this good art? They're mm-hmm. salespeople. That's what they do. And and we're artists who don't want to sell. So so we're stubborn on the other side. No no, it's got to be artistic. I don't want to sell. I don't want to do a selling point. I don't want to add something to make it more commercial just because it'll make it more commercial. And they're saying yeah, but it all works together. So we're kind of prejudiced against them and they're prejudiced against us. We're the artists, and so people tend to look more favorably at artists than they do it at money people and sellers. But it's just we all have different wheelhouse tools or whatever you call it, wheelhouse or toolbox mm-hmm. or whatever, yeah. and we use what we have. If a guy's born who's kind of aggressive and is a super talker, he's not going to do as well as a half-hour comedy writer as he would maybe running the network mm-hmm. that's interesting somebody's got to do it it made me think like what you know is somebody like looking over rembrandt's shoulder and was like we need more boobs in these <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? <laughs> and he's yeah. like i'm an artist you know this is a pastoral painting and he's like no nah, they would do that today <laughs> they, so today they'd have yeah they'd have the, the the van gogh episode where you know i mean series and and they're telling them what's why can't you do tits what's your problem with titties you know yeah. you went, Van Gogh, you but yeah. So you know, I've had people. I when I've had this discussion, they say, "Then be an artist, be a novelist, be somebody where you don't get as much influence." And but but that's all changing too. Artists are told to make this stuff more uh, approachable. Uh, who are artist artists, uh, you know, fine art artists, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just all over the place. They're the salespeople, 
and there are the artists, and they don't really mesh well. Mm-hmm. They're from two different worlds. And if I say, they'll say what I said, you know, hey, if we don't sell your stuff, you can't do your stuff. Mm-hmm. You'll starve. Mm-hmm. You need us. And, I, and it's true. Yeah, it's interesting how much influence commercialism has over, um, you know, products like that. And maybe that's why Netflix, the Netflix model is doing so well. It's because they don't do commercials. You don't have to stop for a commercial break. They want your right. data. You know, they're going to sell your data to a commercial agency on the side. But your watching habits, your viewing habits, your interests. But their the only influence is they still want to have a lot of people watching because there are subscription fees from which they make mm-hmm. a huge amount of money that that that's critical. So they do care if people are watching, but like you say, not show to show and they're not keeping track like that. They're keeping track of their overall how many people are subscribing. That means we're doing a good job if we get a lot of subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Um so they have to use more, I think, artistic and, and non-specific sales thought when they're dealing with these shows. They still have to think, gee, we don't want to put a show that nobody's going to watch. It's, it's a wonderful, brilliant show. Well, they'd probably put a wonderful, brilliant show on because the thing about their overall marketability is based on the impression of the series more than on individual episodes. I don't know. What do you think? What, what do you think's going on there? You think that's why Netflix does better shows? Well, I mean, I don't. I know that they definitely have a little bit more flexibility, and I don't think they do notes, and they also don't give ratings. You know, they don't. They have right. ratings. They understand ratings. They're, they're tracking all that stuff very intimately. Yeah, but they don't tracking. share that stuff, and they don't share it with other networks. So and I don't think competing. they make decisions on ratings. They wouldn't tax. They wouldn't cancel Taxi for low ratings. Yeah. As long as Taxi's still winning, getting death series they would have to be on the air you know and netflix but you have shows like um you know the good place which was definitely a different type of you know half hour comedy um i don't Are know if sure that, I, think I don't think that played on network no i think it did i think that did was it play on uh, network? Indie, yeah. I maybe i just caught it on netflix it, maybe it oh yeah yeah you might have caught it afterwards yeah i'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure it was a network show uh, if you think about the language, language is a pretty good indicator. Mm-hmm. The show never says fuck or shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's network. They have you can, you can all kinds of things. It's kind of mm-hmm. on Netflix. They have sitcoms that they'll oh. have curse words, and it's kind of jarring. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they have a, that sitcom. show with Ashton Kutcher, The Ranch, which is supposed yeah. to be like a um, you know a multi-camera show. And there's a laugh track, but I don't know why. Oh yeah, that is it weird. It throws me off so much because I'm like, this is not filmed in front of a studio audience. I don't know what it is because it's on Netflix. It doesn't seem. Um, I don't want that either. I don't know what it is either. And, and, and they do outdoor scenes with laugh tracks and stuff. That's odd. Like, where's the, where's the audience bizarre. sitting? You know, it's exactly. Just, you know what? I, I you, you know I've talked about this where we compare. Uh, a soundtrack, music uh, soundtrack to uh, adding laughter, because laughter is a pleasant sound as well. Yeah. So you can add music almost to any scene, and if music's good enough, it, you know, it can't be terrible music, but if music's good enough that you're not even really noticing it, nobody complains about the artificiality of somebody outdoors, and suddenly they're professing your love, and suddenly we hear violins and things. Yeah. Uh, nobody ever complains about that, but they would complain about a laugh track out there. I think it's because sounds are all different. Uh, 
a laugh track is like you wouldn't put a, a tuba in that love scene. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to put uh, you're not going to put laughter in that love scene because it doesn't feel right. I don't think laughter feels right in any outdoor scene. Somehow it jars our brain. Mm-hmm. And since music is kind of a feel feel your way through, you, the rules there are rules, but so much of it is, is how you feel. I think there's something to be said for laughter does not work outdoors. Yeah. It just does not work as a, as a sound additive when you're outdoors. And, and in some scenes, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, well, in some scenes, even indoors, it doesn't work because it seems very intimate and somebody says something funny and suddenly you hear those laughs. Jars me again. I don't mm-hmm. like that. So. It's kind of an antiquated thing, you know what I mean? Like, if you watch, like, um, something like um, Big Bang Theory, it's because of the way, I don't, it must be the sets and the style or something, the shooting, that you accept it for certain shows, but not other shows, you know? Yes. And I think, like, with music, if you've edited before, then you'll start to recognize how bizarre it is to just throw another sound in there, you know what I mean? Like, when you're sitting there in the editing room and you're picking music, it's like, oh, wait, this is very impactful and it, it could tie a scene together you know it can work but at the same time you become much more aware of that now the general audience doesn't really have any knowledge of that maybe more people now because of youtube and people doing all these video creating on their own but you know yeah I, until you brought that up I, I i hadn't really articulated it in that way to think like yeah you can throw music into any scene pretty much but yeah and, and you don't get the same type if of you do the right music. You, you know you know what i think it is because music has such a range, yeah. huge range, and laughter is pretty much laughter. Laughter does not have a big range. I mean, yeah. you do soft laughs and hard laughs and feminine laughs and, and masculine, you know, mostly a male audience, a female audience. Yeah, Those things all sound different. Chuckles, yeah. But there's still, it's all still laughter. It's like, here's, here's my, I play the banjo, mm-hmm. and it's, Steve Martin does this, it's a great joke that he does about Banjo is just happy music, and you mm-hmm. you try and say you try you tell a very sad story, and then you want to break into your music, mm-hmm. and you suddenly go bing 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 bing, bing you know it just doesn't work sad yeah. it just doesn't work sad it's a very limited thing banjos banjos are great, but within their certain area right. I think laugh tracks are like that, and and another thing is once you started a laugh track you have to be consistent with it you can't yes. throw a laugh track into one scene because you think it'll help that scene yeah uh, audiences then are jarred by the lack of the laugh track or by laugh tracks in scenes that you wouldn't expect so laugh tracks to touch your sound and i said it's like the sound of a tuba tubas don't play well for emotional things but some <laughs> emotional things some things tubas are wonderful for that's why it still exists as a as an instrument, but tubas are limited in the way I think banjos are limited in the way I think laugh tracks are, tracks are limited. They all have value in their own areas, mm-hmm. but they're not versatile like a piano or violins or guitars. They're more versatile. They seem to be able to find a, a place in almost anything. And I think that's the problem with the laugh track. It's too strange a sound to not really stand out when you put it in. Mm-hmm. So you can only put it in into comedies, really. And I, I'm telling you, I don't like laugh tracks, and I come from the world of laugh tracks. But I used to defend it, saying it's, it's we're adding it, we're adding a sound that's that's good. Like people add music. I used to say that when I did Taxi and, and Cheers, because 
people used to tell me they loved the sound of the laughter, hmm. but they belonged in those shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they love it in those shows. Yes, in those shows. Right. They yeah. loved it in those shows because it felt natural in those shows. Yeah. And they love the sound of laughter. And even when it's coming from a laugh track, which is based on real audiences, no laugh track is just totally manufactured from a machine. Mm -hmm. There were machines that augment laugh tracks, but they were recorded from real laughter. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's laughter is a strange, strange, strange dude, that laughter yeah. character. You know, it's like I still like it in a, in a, in a two-act, multi-camera, half-hour comedy with solid jokes, I still like a laugh track. Yeah. But I don't like it anywhere else. Yeah. I don't like it anywhere else. Nobody buys an, an album full of uh, laughter. And in fact, you were saying, yeah. I think maybe it was in one of the drafts of your book or something like that. Were you talking about the, the history of the person who started going around recording the different laugh tracks and everything? It was in it was in a uh, an online class I wrote for a university, it, it, but I ne it's not in my book because I didn't think it was relevant to, mm -hmm. to be able to write. So I, yeah. I, my my book is short enough where it's only about things that are important to the writing and not not as many sidebars. But yeah, it's an interesting idea that the guy the guy who invented the laugh track machine even, I mean that guy made a fortune. I made a huge fortune. He, what he did is he recorded laughter from these live audiences and he figured out some way to, to computerize it so he could make he could take pieces of it and make like i said you know, laughter just women just men primarily women and some men and uh, hard laughter guffaws soft laughter chuckles and they all sound real because they're all real laughter but he can do it in an instant you say i don't know it seems you know that's a funnier joke than we never did this on Taxi. But yeah, it was about to ask, yeah. yeah. No, no, we never did this. Well, that's a funnier joke than, than the audience got, so push up the laughs. Yeah. And he can do he can do that. I've seen that done. I've seen him push up the laughs. What we have done is sometimes we'll record a scene. This is what, where I've seen it done in person, is that we'll record a scene, but the actor flubs the line, or mm -hmm. the camera's out of place. Mm -hmm. So you have to reshoot the scene in front of the same audience that just saw it. Mm -hmm. And the second time you play it, they barely laugh at all right and so so then when you in editing you're looking at the two scenes oh this one's flawed this one's fine but there's no laughter push up the laugh right so yeah. what it was so what it really was that's interesting too like you know you have like a good you're on to something when somebody can watch the same thing multiple times and still get like not only the same laugh, but some like I used to watch some comedies where it's like I would laugh mm -hmm. more. You know what I mean? There are some there's some bits to do that. That's interesting. Some things get bigger laughs by repeating. Most things lose way off, falls way off the second time. Most most jokes are based on surprise. Mm -hmm. But repetition of the same joke is based on kind of re it's on recognition, which is different than surprise. So right. It's a little bit of the, there's a little, little bit of surprise, but it's more about uh, recognizing something that that you you know, and it comes back, and it's like an old friend. Oh yeah, and then sometimes it's just they're not going to do this another time, are they? And they do yeah. it a third time. You go, oh come on, that's too many times. But then you do a fourth time. The fourth time you kind of chuckle. These guys are idiots. And then the fifth time. 
you just so you just can't believe you did. Now you're laughing at the audacity of these people right. doing the same joke five times in a row. So yeah, there's all kinds of like that's why when a student once asked me, Well, how do you how do you write jokes? How do you how do you make something funny? Right. Asked me in a class like I was gonna answer that in one sentence and then they're gonna be able to go out and write comedy. You know, I said, mm, it doesn't work that way. Uh you have to have a sense of humor. Yeah, I was gonna ask. Did this student have a sense of humor? Like, were they somebody? No. Okay. Well, it was somebody without a sense of humor. Yeah. That I don't uh, understand. Do you have a sense of humor? I do not Why understand. Why comedy class? Or just I don't understand people with no sense of humor. You know what I mean? Like that is bizarre to me. It just seems like it doesn't fit. I mean, not in a comedy writing setting, just in general. Like people who don't like they're so serious yeah. all the time. They don't take they don't think anything's funny. They don't like yeah. they don't like. Some people really get upset if you laugh, you know, like if you laugh at, you know, they'll, they'll really get upset. Like, what are you laughing at? You know, they always well, think it's personal. Those... Yes. Yes. They always, they think it's about them. Yeah. My mom's like that. If somebody laughs in the room, she goes, what, why are you laughing at me? They go, well, yeah. about you. I thought of something funny. Yeah. Oh, you did not. You're laughing at me. You know, that kind of, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. no, no, about. You know? Yeah. About how laughter, laughter sounds good to me. You were just laughing a minute ago, just now, and, yeah. and it sounds good. I still love the sound of laughter. Sure. You said who would go out and buy a who would go out and buy an album of laughs? I probably would. Yeah. If somebody made a, an album of laughs and and each each track was different mm-hmm. and each 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 section was different, I probably I might buy it. Just not to listen to it all the time, but listen. It might to be interesting actually one to time. have. It'd yeah. be funny. Play it like parties and stuff like that, just to Different put it on the background. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, one of the things I like about theaters that you don't get with TV, which is not in my book, because I say only good things about TV in the book. Yeah. Um, is uh, when people laugh at comedy. I love the mm-hmm. sound of laughter. Yeah. And when you're in a theater, nobody put in a laugh track, so you can't blame anybody of artificiality, but People do laugh at the jokes and they don't laugh at something that's a moment later serious. And I just feel good when I, all the people around me are laughing. Mm-hmm. It just makes me feel good. It's a really positive energy and a positive sound. Yeah. So, um, and the other, po- the other one that's similar to that, which is TV, which kind of makes the point about the value of the soundtrack, is when I was a kid and my parents would make me go to bed earlier and they'd stay up and watch the adult sitcoms. I could hear the laugh track only. I couldn't make out what was being said, but I could mm-hmm. always hear the laugh track. It was a very different sound. Mm-hmm. And it made me feel good. Mm-hmm. When I was in my bedroom by myself, the laughter come from the TV. It yeah. made me feel good. It made me feel happier. It made mm-hmm. me feel things were right. Yeah, yeah, things yeah. Were right in the world, you know? I think so, that's maybe why they put, like, late night television has, you know, it's like comedy. Like, they tie up the evening with a little bit of comedy, you know, before you go to bed. Mm. You know, so people are kind of... But they're not laugh tracks anymore, most of them. So, you, you, unless you are with somebody who's fr- a free laugher, you're not getting that benefit of the laugh without a laugh track. And that's my defense again of the laugh track. Mm-hmm. There's certain... There's almost nothing that's absolute in this world. Mm-hmm. You can't say laugh tracks are bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can say, I don't like laugh tracks, and I rarely like to hear them, but I can guarantee you there are times when you would like to hear a laugh track because they make you feel good. What was that? That's my dog. I'd rather hear a laugh track right now than my dog. <laughs> I'll probably edit in a, a laugh track over this little piece. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> do that. That'd be funny. All right. Yeah. Laugh. Don't even say anything about it. Just throw in a laugh. Yeah, laugh. Yeah. That'd be funny. I was actually um, wondering, like, you know, the guy who came up with the laugh track, you know, like the box or whatever, what it was yeah. called. If he started to, like, um, notice different laughter to the point where he was not, like, listening to it for enjoyment. You know, like, Norm MacDonald, one time on his show, he commented to his co-host, like, oh, that's a fake laugh. Like, I can tell a fake laugh from a real mm. laugh. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you, and he's like, I don't want the fake laugh. I want the real laugh, you know? And, like, I oh. wonder if this person could, like, differentiate, oh, that person's just amused. Or that person's, yeah. like... That person is, um, it's a, I don't know. a laugh where it's like they're blowing them off. You know what I mean? Because there's a, you know, there's a whole, there, there's a range of laughter. You know, it's, it's a very yeah. interesting thing. And laughter, you know, like, you know, in, in film school, they always tell you like, oh, read, the, what is it, Aristotle's work, The Republic or something like that. What is it that, you know, always read that for drama or whatever. But you go to the comedy yeah. section and it looks like, when I read that, I was like, it seemed like it was cut off. Like. They didn't want to like fully, like it was fully investigated and the usefulness was um, known then, but they didn't want to like have people know what the purpose of, you know, comedy and laughs really are about, you know, like, mm. and I, I always remember thinking like that section was really short, you know, and I know mm. comedies are usually shorter, but. Yeah, people, people look down on comedies for some yeah. reason. They love them. Yeah, they do. But they look down on the creation of them. It's a weird thing. I don't know, because they think they're easy because they're laughing and feeling good. It doesn't seem like it's work, I guess. Yeah. I You were saying something about... About... about oh, oh, yeah, about could this person who makes the laugh machine... You were right, it's called the box, the mm -hmm. laugh box. Yeah. Who can make the box. Uh, could he tell between a real laugh and a fake laugh? Reminds me of what Jim Brooks used to do. He used to, and not Jim just Jim Brooks, most people who, who own shows would would be pissed off at the writing staff for not laughing hard enough when when the actors were doing their material. They said, look, if the actors aren't laughing, we're going to have to rewrite it because the network's here. Mm -hmm. So you guys have to laugh. But they could tell a fake laugh, and the fake laughs always were worse than no laugh at all. Mm -hmm. And even to the actors, if an actor does a scene and hears all these fake laughs, I would be more insulted as an actor hearing all the fake laughs and no laughs. Yeah. I'd rather hear no laughs than fake laughs. Jim Brooks had the fakest laugh I'd ever heard. And <laughs> and he'd always do it. And it's on his shows, like on the Mary Tyler Moore show, it's on Taxi. You can't not hear it because it's such a fake, loud laugh. Yeah. He did that for the actors. And he thought it was good for the actors, whether it was fake or not, which I disagreed with. And... He, it turns out the thing that I felt was a fake laugh. He, I've seen him laugh at in private situations too. So maybe I insulted him because maybe that's his real laugh. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So I don't. I'm. I'm one of these people who can't tell for sure between a fake and a real laugh. Some laughs sound fake to me, but I think Jim's laugh it sounded very fake to me. Possibly was a real laugh, except I know he was so interested in giving the actors that that boost with the laughter. That it had to be fake. Maybe his fake laugh kind of slipped over into his real laugh and they and kind of polluted it. So his real laugh sounds like his fake laugh. I don't know. But I don't know anymore. When Jim laughs at things, I never know if he really means it or not. But there is something to the tone of the laugh and the type of laugh. I mean, the Seinfeld did a whole episode on a 
on a woman he was dating that didn't have the right kind of laugh. And then for a comedian, oh, really? you know what I mean? He's just like, yo, I got to get rid of this lady because she laughed. Oh, what was wrong with her laughter? I think it was Janice or something like that. Wasn't it? I think where she was just like, you know, the show, the nanny where she has that really like high pitch, like kind of oh, nasally yeah, yeah, voice. Yeah. And I think it was uh-huh. kind of like someone like that, like had a um, nasally kind of, you know, um, uh, and there are annoying true. laugh, actually. You know, there I mean. are annoying laughs. Isn't that, yeah. isn't that interesting? It, it, the annoying element that takes away your appreciation and your enjoyment of the, of the rest of the laugh. So, yeah. That's that's so you can't even make a statement like say, uh, you know, laughter is always a an uplifting thing because sometimes laughter can just irritate you. Sometimes it can bring you down when somebody laughs at something they shouldn't laugh at. Mm-hmm. You know. That can be offensive. Yeah. Like so, tubas or something. Yeah. Yeah. Laughing at tubas is not good. Tuba players hate that. I used to play the tuba, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah, I played the tuba. Why'd you pick the, why'd you pick the tuba? No, I did, I, they picked it for me. I played trombone and marching oh, band, oh, and oh. then, like, we we had more trombonists than we needed, but we had somebody, like, the sousaphone player, or, or uh, same thing, sousaphone tuba like dropped out or something so i would play the sousaphone every once in a while oh. it's, a, it's a difficult thing sometimes to do. but sometimes it's difficult to play the tuba yeah because it's like you know it covers your whole face and like you know you're like bom, 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 bom. Yeah. it's not you know you're not playing the melody it's not like you get all yeah. about it you can move the thing around a little bit but <laughs> yeah. you're in these like really like you know like mylar slacks you just look like an idiot anyway you know what i mean it's 100 degrees out there you're marching but you know what's great is that's the only place you can put your big sign Mm -hmm. goes around where the the opening of the tuba yeah very often they put the sign that has the school yeah where the tuba the tuba oh yeah they they put mesh over it and then write on it yeah usc or something you need that tuba they have that up there i've seen like you know like i watch i sometimes will look up like old like or not old, but I'll I'll still follow like marching bands and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like especially those people that, you know, the teams that do like the huge field formations and like they're moving around and all that stuff. That's gotta be hard. Yeah, Keep yeah. Tracking your music while you're having to hit marks. Yeah, yeah, for That's sure. Gotta be hard. You have to ro- you heel toe heel toe so you don't like bounce. You know, like when you're playing. And it's uh, uh yeah, it's, it's a very difficult thing, but it it works well with the percussion. You know what I mean? It's pretty cool. You know. Yeah, but yeah. It just shows like my dorkness, my dorkiness, because like you know, for it's like, yeah, comedy. People don't like comedy, and then like you know, people think uh, band, you know, marching band is super dorky. You know what I mean? It's like all the cool stuff. It's an upside down. You world know what? Yeah, it's funny. It's down because I appreciate marching bands for that yeah. reason. It's kind of dorky, but it usually comes at halftime. Yeah. And you need relief from the intense football games if something's fun. Yeah. And the dorkier the better. It's yeah. like and some bands embrace that. Like who's brand some, some famous was it Stanford? Somebody had one that just runs all over the place and their formations are terrible and they just make fun of they just <laughs> yeah. make fun of who they are. Yeah. Gotta you gotta embrace your disadvantage, you know, that's what you go for. Yeah. But but I always like marching bands. I, I always I admired that. I knew man Making those formations while you're playing your music, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. I didn't know you had to do the toe. I mean, heel toe. That's yeah. to keep you from bouncing. But I didn't even know about that part. 
Yeah, like when you know, when I was a kid, I was you know, I lived in Fontana, and we were in marching band. I was in marching band at the time. I was in jazz band in the morning, and then I was in regular band during the day, and I was in marching band after school. Wow. Yeah, but it was just like a way to like not have to go to class, you know. Like I didn't want to yeah. take. I wouldn't have done that with math, you know. I wouldn't have taken all those classes with math or something. But yeah, there are the kids who are in the math club, and you go, what? Are, well, who are these kids? There are a lot math of kids from band, too. actually. A lot of the kids that were really good in band were also really good at math because you're always counting, oh. you're always doing a lot of timing, yeah, yeah. you know. But um, I don't know. Band was cool. I liked band. Of course, I, when I got into band when I was in middle school, I wanted to play the drums like everybody. And my dad, well, my right. dad's a musician, you know, so I had it like already kind of embedded. And then it's like you want to play the saxophone because that's cool, you know. And then it's like, yeah, yeah, that 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 would be my choice. I, I drum, saxophone. What's the next one? In my trumpet. Choice? You know, you play trumpet, and then everybody's like, yeah, that's trumpet's cool. not as cool as saxophone though. Trumpet's yeah. good. And then you get like, you know, then you start working down the line, you know, it's like, well, I'm not going to be caught dead with a flute or a clarinet, you know what I mean? I'm not going to go that route. Yeah, yeah. And I love Absolutely the clarinet. clarinet. I think they yeah. look clarinet's awesome. good. Yeah. But you don't like the look of it. Well, you know, when you're trying to be cool, you know, in middle school, you know, it's not the go-to, you know, but, uh, and then you're definitely not going to do tuba, you know what I mean? That's too, that's too dorky because you look like an idiot carrying that thing around, you know, <laughs> as a little kid, but. Even yeah. to practice, yeah, it's carried to practice, you know, it's like, yeah. it's just, a tuba is a mess. Yeah. You know, I know somebody who played, who played the bass, an acoustical bass. Yeah. And he it was the hardest part of his job was carrying that mother around all the time. You, know, you mean a stand-up, an upright yeah. bass? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Acoustical, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he had to carry that wherever he went. And he worked. He was a working uh, musician. Yeah. Uh, but he always had to carry the damn bass and put it in his car and get it out of his car. And Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a hassle. Huge hassle, yeah. Actually, once in middle school, I hid in the tuba case, now that I think about all the <laughs> tuba-related stuff. And my... Uh, my uh, teacher, Miss Frankie, she, you know, she's calling out roll and everybody's giggling because they're I'm like hiding in the tuba case and you jump out and it's a big surprise or whatever. But yeah, band was fun. I think I like. I like By the way, surprise again. Yeah. That's the com comedy is surprise mostly. Yeah. Com that's because I, I didn't say that to that person who asked me because I, I just had too much I'd have to tell them. Yeah. So I just said, look, you know, we would have to talk about this another time. It's just too much. Can't tell you what's funny. Yeah. Um, but I could have said probably nine times out of ten, or maybe even ten times out of ten. But the tenth one has is augmented a little bit. It's surprise. Yeah. It's something you don't expect. Yeah. I had somebody once when I was at a pitch, not a pitch meeting, but one of those. You know, like in L.A., you go and it's like a meet and greet. You know what I mean? Like one of those meet uh -huh. and greets. Yeah. And I was describing to someone it was a meet and greet for Nickelodeon, and I was talking to this girl next to me and she was saying like oh what do you write and I was like oh I write comedy you know and she's like oh that's so difficult and I was thinking like it actually is not as difficult if you have a sense of humor it's not as it's writing drama and we talked about this a little bit before but writing drama and just making something like purposely making people feel bad I don't know it just doesn't seem as like that seems more difficult to spend your time but I've heard that writing rooms for dramas they they do like they they make a lot of jokes you know like it's actually a funny oh room. really yeah and I mm -hmm. and I'm I don't know like I think comedy writing rooms are usually pretty funny but there's kind of a seriousness to it you know because you have you got to get in there and get that comedy in there you know but yeah well, comedy rooms are fun yeah. uh, we write we write rooms for comedies fun because everybody in there not only has a sense of humor their sense of humor is so 
uh, well-developed that they're making a living with it. So yeah. you have a lot of good improvised jokes that aren't in the script. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you get to talk about stuff and, like, you know, you make – I don't know why people like have an idea about comedy as if it's not – because you're making a joke about something, it's like you don't have any real sense of seriousness. It's like I, I'm usually making jokes about things that are very serious to me. You know, like that's where my, I got hit by a semi in Dallas once and like, um, the entire ride home after we got picked up, I could not stop making jokes about getting hit by a semi. <laughs> it was like, and you just hear the audience, I started bombing, you know, at first I was doing well and then I just started bombing, you know, but yeah. it was like my way of dealing with it was just to yeah. make jokes about it. You know what I mean? It wasn't that it wasn't a big deal to me. It's just that that's how I handled it. Did you go to the hospital? Did you go to the hospital after that? No, no, no. Like we just like we got sideswiped by a semi. It was a hit and run, oh. and we spun oh. out in the middle of the road. It was like at two o'clock in the morning, and it had been raining, and it was a pretty serious accident. But the guy who was driving, he only got like a cut on his thumb from the glass breaking, and I remember like spinning. Like you hit, we hit mid uh, trailer, you know. So I thought we were gonna go oh. under the trailer, but he pulled the wheel to oh. the right, and I remember as he pulled the wheel to the right like a sound came out of me that like was not voluntary, you know, like a, you're on a roller coaster and it wasn't like, Oh, we're having fun. It was just like, oh, you know, like this crazy sound came out of me. And I remember just thinking like, Oh, we're going to get like, I'm going to see the lights and we're going to get hit, you know, like, cause we're in traffic. But luckily, you know, we just spun out on the freeway and then cars passed us by that uh, semi just kept going. And, you know, we just got out of the car and, you know, eventually made it to a 7-Eleven and had somebody come, had my brother's friend come pick us up, you know, like, it was pretty crazy. Oh. Did, yeah. Did they, did they ever stop the truck driver? Did no, stop no. Stop the truck driver? It was a full-on hit and run. And the, the guy well, how who... Come they, how come they weren't able to trace the truck? Well, because I told the guy who was driving, a student named Chase, I told him, like, look, you've been drinking. Because he said he was oh. on Benadryl that night, and he was like, I wasn't really drinking, but I was like, you said you were on Benadryl, and I for sure remember telling you, ah, that's not going to do anything if you take a couple of shots. You know what I mean? Like, so I remember him taking a couple of shots. And so I convinced oh. him like, oh, you probably shouldn't call the authorities because you've been drinking. And I was yeah, yeah, he, hammered. You know what I mean? I was super drunk. Yeah. So. yeah it was just like kind of a crazy night. Total wow. truck. And he couldn't figure so out like why I didn't want to. Yeah. What did he have a pickup? Yeah. Pickup like a white pickup, oh. just wrecked the whole wow. ride. He couldn't really understand yeah, why he didn't he... want rides from him anymore. <laughs> well, yeah. bad, bad, bad uh, visual uh, stimulation that re reoccurs, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, because yeah. I wasn't driving. I, I was like, I remember just talking to him, and then he's, I, as I'm talking, he's like, what's going on? What's going on? And then, like, then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose, you know, and I, I never could like mm. decipher if it was his driving or if the truck just moved. Oh. I think we were in the blind spot of that semi and so the truck yeah, changed you, lane. And, you know, it's possible. I've driven the semis. I mean my dad Have was in really? the trucking business. Yeah, my dad was in the trucking business. That was oh, his, that's his cool. Living. I wanted to so be I've a semi driver actually. Oh you did? Until then. Yeah. Until then. Yeah. I was like really into it until it's that possible moment. a semi driver doesn't even know he was hit. Yeah. I mean that trailer moves while you're driving and yeah. then it bumps and then you get all kinds of feelings. If you guys just sideswiped and didn't hit it enough to jar, to move it, 
Yeah. Which can take a lot of hit. Yeah. Uh, it's possible he doesn't even know he was hit. Yeah. It's possible he wasn't guilty, that he didn't know he was hit. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, you know, I have thought about that because it was, we were, tw you know, toward the end of the trailer, not directly in the middle, but toward the end. That's why I kept thinking the wheels are going to, like, crush over us, you know, but. Yeah, yeah, that's a scary thought, yeah. I mean, that has happened. Yeah. People have gone underneath trailers, and that's, that's deadly. It's a wreck, um, yeah. Yeah, so, wow. Well, you got to cut all this out. <laughs> <laughs> but this is that stuff you know you talk about like keeping a, a file of uh things that you've lived through and then yeah. you know putting those things into the into the writing yeah you know I, actually I, yeah yeah i actually wanted to be a semi-driver up until that moment uh, yeah i was really right. into peterbilt and yeah like oh uh, no kidding Kenworth. yeah peterbilt oh yeah those are the best trucks i didn't yeah. drive it i know i may have driven one because i drove for my dad didn't have them. My dad had the cheaper ones. He had like a, uh, like a Freightliner. Freightliner, you know. yeah, yeah. But um, did he own them or was he leasing them or? Oh, he owned them. He had a trucking company. He owned all those trucks. Uh, oh, really? And, wow. And and uh, Mack truck and some of those. Yeah, Mack. That weren't as good. I'm trying to think of um, anyhow. Uh, yeah, but the Peterbilt was like the Rolls Royce of yeah. trucks. They ever wanted a Peterbilt. Yeah. Yeah, they're super cool. I mean, I still, you know what it was, is I think like a long time ago, I heard that Carl Malone, who like, I wasn't like a huge Utah jazz fan, but I, he, I saw some expose on him where he bought a semi. And from there I started begin like, I got like uh, really into semis and I wasn't like a huge Carl Malone fan. I was just thinking like, oh, that's awesome. I didn't know you could own one of those. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It would be a weird thing to drive around for pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, I still like, I'll still check out semis and stuff. I still like, go online and like look up like cool semis and well they're cool they're big they're a big piece of instrument you know when you're driving one you have this awareness that it's yeah. a big motherfucker you know yeah yeah you have to you know you got to take your your corners you got to swing out way wide because you not only have to make it your trailer has to make it yeah totally. and you swing out wide some people come want to go in between you and the and the, and the spaces and and you know the the worst thing is is when you're coming on an on ramp, or you're going by an on ramp, and either way, drivers have no idea you can't stop this thing. Yeah, you have so much momentum going. And they're so if stupid. Full, if you they have cut a full off. truck going seventy miles an hour, full truck, all that way, you have so much momentum you can't stop. All that it. kinetic energy. Yeah. Except with you know very long distance to stop one of those things, you start slowing it down with your brakes, mm -hmm. but you cannot just stop. It not it doesn't work. If you yeah. were to do that, the whole thing would flip around and knock off everybody. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Jack. Yeah, they'll come on on ramps and they'll go right in front of you, and you're yeah. going fuck. You know, you know I can't stop now. For some reason, you stop. I'm going to run you over. There's yeah. no way I could stop. And and they'll cut in from other lanes like that, and they'll, um, yeah. There's this real you're driving, but you do feel you're up above the traffic, so you're you're higher than everybody else. So you're looking down on them, and you have got this big piece of equipment. Yeah. And um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool, but it's a little scary. I never was comfortable when I was driving. I was always afraid I was going to have an accident because that's really people common. People cutting in and out, and yeah, yeah. that's like common I, for Yeah, because my cousin's a trucker. And uh, yeah. he's been a trucker for years. And before that accident that I had, like, um, I went on a run with him from 
uh, Fort Worth to Waco. And because mm. he was like, I was telling him like, oh, maybe I'd be interested in trucking. And I was like, well, come on a run with yeah. me. You can see what it's like. And um, it was cool. You know, it was like a bit interesting, but I learned about like the Jake break and like, you know, I learned how to like signal. So like my wife makes fun of me now because I still signal to trucks. Like I flash my lights oh, at them. Oh, oh, you do? To let them in. Yeah, so yeah. That, that way they know like uh-huh. it's safe. So that, that way they can get over. I give them a lot of leeway. And then, you know, like I get. Usually I, they flash you back, right? Even if they don't, I get like, a, I get kind of like, hey, man, this guy's not following the rules, man. You know, like yeah, they, yeah. they don't give me the brake lights, you know, like I don't, yeah. I get kind of like, or the hazards or whatever. But I learned that from him. And then, um, but yeah, a buddy that my um, little brother hangs out with, he's a trucker now also. And he talked about like waking up in the middle of the night, like screaming, like thinking he's about to jackknife. Like he, he doesn't like it, but he makes good money. But it's such a dangerous job. Mm. It is like, a dangerous job, yeah. And jackknifing is not that uncommon, and it's really scary, and you don't have control of it. And sometimes, you know, sometimes the the on a windy day or something, yeah, the, the trailer starts swaying, mm-hmm. and and you and you're trying to hold this thing on the road, and you're swaying. And it, it, I didn't like it. I I just drove for my dad mostly on smaller trucks when when he had the trucking company. Yeah, it was all my life actually. All his life, he had a trucking yeah. company, and and um, I would drive the the straight truck. Those are the ones where the box is right on right on, on the, the cab. Tra- yeah, it's not a trailer and a, and a tractor. Yeah, it's the cab and the and the box. The, it doesn't the, have the head. One. Yeah, with the yeah, cables they're all one unit. They're all yeah. one unit. Yeah. Um, I used to drive those for him. I used to do that every summer. I'd drive those and make smaller deliveries, local deliveries. Right, right. But. I once got a job for Reynolds Aluminum Company in the recycling department when I first graduated from college. Yeah. And one of the things they liked about my, shows you how stupid college is sometimes. With all my, you had to have a college degree to apply for a management position for Reynolds, even with the recycling center. It's yeah. all dirt and scum and awful stuff. But, but you still had to have a college degree. Yeah. But I had a college degree and I, I had a class one license. No, I didn't have a class one license at the time. But I did have, have experience that I wrote down on the thing that I had driven these trucks. Yeah. They hired me not for what degree I had. I had right, a right, degree right. in useless totally. recycling. Yeah. They yeah. hired me because I could drive a truck. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well, there are a lot of guys who could drive trucks better than me. Hire one of those guys you really cared about driving the truck. Yeah. And, and forget about this college degree requirement. Yeah. I had a guy working for me. He was a truck driver. He was wonderful with all kinds of tools. Sometimes we'd have to rent uh lifts and stuff that when we, when we needed more i yeah. had the local recycling center uh for the district and and i handled i handled the whole san fernando valley and some of the city too yeah yeah and uh so sometimes we just have too much going on we'd have to rent another lift we didn't have enough forklift um and he would operate those and sometimes they weren't working he knew which line had come loose sort of he was just this great he was so perfect for this job he had a nice personality. He liked the job. He was good with people. He should have been the manager, not me. I always have to go to him when there was a physical problem with the plants and whatever we're doing, and he could fix it. And yeah. this is the guy you want. You don't hire somebody with an English degree who happens to be able to drive a truck <laughs> yeah. make him your recycling manager for the district. Yeah, know? exactly, yeah. So so I used to recommend this guy for promotions whenever another one came up for another center would open up in my area. I would say I want to give him the center, and I would say, no, he doesn't have a college degree. Yeah, every so single stupid. time, no, he doesn't have a college degree. Say, well, what are you gonna do with the college degree? Talk to this guy. He's smart. 
-hmm. He knows everything. He now knows recycling. What are you going to get with a college degree? I used to say this to him. I mean, not in a hostile way, but what are you going to get with a college degree that's going to improve what this guy can do already? It's better than the rest of us with college degrees can do. You're you're missing a perfect opportunity to get a a gem for your operation. No college degree, no job. Yeah. So at some point, this getting this one is a long story. I'll try to shorten it a little bit, but uh, they, my my boss, who was the district manager for the for that whole, whole southern uh, western states, um, said, "Hey, I saw you last night on the Merv Griffin show. That's when I was doing stand up comedy." Yeah. He said, that was you. I saw you on the Merv Griffin show. And I said, "Yeah, yeah." I think he's going to compliment me because we did really well on the show that night. He says, "Yeah." You got to cut that crap out. I said, what, <laughs> what do you mean? He says. Because you're you're in a management position with Reynolds. We don't put you in management position with Reynolds because you're going to leave us when you get some show business opportunity. He said, you're, it's one career or the other. Do you want to be a comedian or do you want to run a recycling center? Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure that was a hard one. Not a hard, hard choice. Yeah. Run a recycling center for the rest of my life or be a comedian. Mm, okay, I'll be, I think comedian. Yeah. And he, he said, he couldn't believe me. He didn't believe that I'd make that choice. I said, I quit. I'm through. Uh, you know, just send me my my um, severance pay, and we're done. It was nice working with you. And he said, "Well, wait a minute." <laughs> he got called on his. He thought he, he thought it was no brainer. Yeah. Uh, which also reminds me of story. Somebody he pitches a story, and somebody says, "No brainer this way," mm-hmm. and then his partner says, "Wait, it's no brainer this way." He said, "That's why I came up with the idea that you guys rejected because you said it was so obvious. You both thought it was obvious for the opposite reasons." It wasn't obvious at all. You're just both stupid idiots. But mm-hmm. they didn't say that part. Yeah. I haven't had anything with the show. So um, so this guy didn't expect me to say, I'm leaving. So then he said, I'll tell you what. So you stay for a while longer and we'll give you some more money. And I said, I don't want more money. I don't want to stay for a while. It's just like, I know there's nowhere here. I know you guys aren't happy with the fact that I'm going to stand up, which is what I do for, I'm hoping for my living someday. Mm-hmm. I don't plan to stay here. So I don't want to have any false, but then I don't know if I brought it up. I think I'm the one who brought it up. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a month. And they, only, they didn't ask me to stay for a month. I think I said I gave you two months. I'll give you two months. I'll continue running this center while you find a replacement if you give my assistant the center. Mm-hmm. And they did. They gave him a center, and he was their best manager. He's the best center runner. Oh, so you, did, you did hook him up. Oh, yeah. Got him a center. But oh, I that's had awesome. Two more months. I had to run the, the operations for two more months, which wasn't that terrible, but he was very grateful. He really was a great guy. He was a great guy. Yeah. He just didn't, couldn't afford to go to college when he was younger or chose not to go to college. I don't know. I never asked him why. Yeah. Because he was bright. You know, it he sounds smart, smart actually. He didn't go to college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, he didn't um, do it. It sounds like a good plan. Yeah. But anyhow, he ended up managing. In fact, he had, it wasn't another center. I said he, I wanted him to operate my center, not necessarily be the man, manager of the region, which I was, mm-hmm. but, but but have a center. And, and since I was going to leave in two months, it was logical to give him my center, which we did. I don't know if they still made that the, the center location for all operations, so I don't know what they gave him. I don't know exactly, but they did give him the center, so he thanked me for it. Yeah, that's cool. And... Um, um, which had reminded me of that story when I tried to sell an idea to 
Whit Thomas, where Whit said, Ken, we don't like this idea because the conclusion is too obvious. Everybody knows where you're going. And Thomas said, yeah, it's just too obvious. And I said, really? Oh, it seems like like a tough dilemma that this character is facing. And I said, why the answer is so obvious to you guys but not to me? I said, well, I said, I don't know. So you tell me what is the obvious answer? Cause I don't know. I just wanted to know what the obvious answer was. Right. And they both said the opposite thing. There were two choices. The, the character needed to go this way or this way. And he said this way, and he said this way. Mm-hmm. And I went, I just looked at them for a minute. They said, okay, go ahead. You can shoot it. <laughs> they did. They, they did have that, you know, the decency to say, we're wrong. Shoot it. Yeah. But how come they were so... How come they couldn't see that it was a choice that some people would... It's kind of like some Democrats and Republicans who cannot see the other person's perspective at all in any possible way. They're just looking straight ahead. Is it possible? Do people do that? They just go straight ahead and never look from side to side? Are there people like that? Well, this is Whit Thomas, who were wonderfully successful, good judgment, uh, artistic people, and who, who just look straight ahead. Only... One was looking that way, one was looking that way, and I was looking there and looking both ways, and I was the one who was wrong. And had I not challenged them, we would have gone on to another idea because they thought that one was just too obvious. Yeah, that's interesting. It's amazing, huh? Yeah, that is interesting, yeah. And writers are going to face it. You're going to get a note from somebody who just is, doesn't get it. Somebody mm-hmm. who will give you a stupid note because they don't get it. And if that's the only voice from the network in the room, you're stuck with that. Yeah. Yeah. And and then right. it's up to you to, in the rewrite room to say, you know, talking to other writers and saying, I can't go that way. I yeah. cannot go that way. We're going to not do this note, but we, I didn't tell them in the room because there's another, we were going to talk about notes a little bit. Yeah. You never tell anybody their note is stupid because I've been in situations where people have been told the notes are stupid who have stupid notes. Mm-hmm then killed the show or killed the moment or because they they have power still. Yeah. Nobody wants to be called stupid, even when they are stupid. So Yeah. Well I they think they're doing something is. smart. They think they have a, a an intelligent perspective on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. They they do. So I've I've run in that situation. So I ran into two intelligent creative people could not see that there were two choices. They thought there was only one choice and it was there. Yet they had a partner who they, with whom they worked for years and years and years, and they knew each other really well and, and couldn't anticipate that maybe my partner might see it differently than I see it, but they did, absolute opposite points of view. I worked with them on another thing where we were rewriting a movie, and the same thing happened where there was a huge moment in the screenplay, a big plot turn, and, um, and one of them said, I, I don't like this because... It's, um, it just doesn't work for me. And the other guy said, that's what I loved about this moment mm-hmm. was what this turned. And the guy says, that doesn't work. And then they would argue for a while. Well, I think this turn is one of the brilliant moments in the whole screenplay. And the other guy says, it's awful. Mm-hmm. And we eventually got to the point where we just quit the project because they, they couldn't agree in that case what to do. So they just canceled the project. We were in the middle of a screenplay uh, rewrite. And said, oh, we're not going any further with this because it was a major point. It was a major point in the in the film. So without that major point, the film was diminished 
hugely, which the ones I said, that's why we should cancel the film, because without that point, there's nothing. Like, I agree, without the point, there's nothing. I think it's a wonderful point, wonderful mm-hmm. turn. So you got, you go up against that kind of stuff. What can you do? You want to say, let's go, let's have a therapy session where we actually talk to a, a, a third party who's not invested in this. But you can't do that. It doesn't work that way in show business. It's, it's like a divorce. I've had a divorce, and that was ugly because it was just she's right and I'm wrong, mm-hmm. and no give, no give, no give, no give, no nowhere. So you do get a third. You try to get an arbitrator who will then be neutral. And I had a judge who said to, said to me, uh, Mr. Esten, you're lying. You're a lying, I think he said scumbag. I think he said something like that. He said, you're lying. Because I have worked with TV producers many times in divorce. This is a judge. Mm-hmm. And they always hide their income at the, when the divorce is coming up. And it's not hard. I, he says, I know enough about your business to know it's not that hard to take a deferred payment. He says, you're obviously taking a deferred payment your income dropped in half and you want me to, to give her alimony based on this reduced income is you're lying to me and I'm not going for it. And I was telling them the absolute truth. I couldn't get a job for about two years during a period I was getting older and it was getting harder. And I went from making, I think that at that time I was making almost a million dollars a year uh, at that time. And earlier I'd be making more than a million dollars a year. And suddenly I was making nothing. He says, I don't believe you. You're, and he didn't say, I don't believe you. And maybe you're telling the truth, but the circumstances look so terrible. He called me a liar. He said, you're a liar, Mr. Eston. Because mm-hmm. I've, I've dealt, dealt with enough producers to know a liar in this situation. And he called me a liar. And I turned to my, I hadn't had much court experience. I turned to my lawyer. Can he, he can't call me a liar. I've never seen a judge on any show I've ever seen call a defendant, mm-hmm. or, a, or in this case, not a defendant, but two people. Calling him a liar, can he do that? And he says he shouldn't really do that. He's saying real quiet. We shouldn't do that. There's nothing we can do about it. No, nobody's here going to do anything about it. We'll just forget it. Yeah, and that's the thing about yeah. I mean, that's a whole another can of worms. But the legal, I mean, they're supposed to be impartial. You know, that's the whole. I would like, think that's so, a but racket. If you watch Judge Judy, she does stuff like that. Tells people like, "You're, I can just tell you're lying to me," and it's like. Just because you're like higher yeah. up doesn't mean you can see everything. <laughs> you know? But yeah. it's absolutely, here's, here's, this is the irony of it. So the judge knows he's right because uh, he said, you're, you're, I said, I'm going to make you pay alimony. This was out alimony. It was temporary alimony because we were just splitting. I'm going to make you pay her as though you're, I'm going to make her based on a salary of 800000 I'm giving you a break because you were making a million a year ago or so. You're gonna to have to pay your alimony based on a hundred on eight hundred thousand dollars a year, and I was making nothing at the time, and I had to pay her out of my savings to pay to be able to pay on eight hundred thousand a year, and I did it for two years, and then got a job that paid me eight hundred thousand a year, and I'm sure the judge, if he looked back, I, I'm sure he never followed up on, it, but would say, see, he was mm-hmm. depressing his income for the divorce, yeah. but I swear to you, I've got nothing to gain by lying to you about this. That or those people listening to me, that um, I went from making 800 to losing my job as a, sh- as a showrunner because my show got canceled, to not being able to pick up another show for two years and making nothing and still having to pay alimony based on 800,000 a year, and then getting a job with 800,000 a year, and and having people like anybody who knew would say, hmm, what was, I wonder what was going on there. Yeah. 
But that happens with with in show business. You can oh, yeah, make eight hundred thousand sure. and then make nothing and then make two million and make you know that happens a lot. I mean people like that's a very fluid uh it's you know, there's why, no job security really, you know, it's not like that's why really. scumbag scumbag producers, which he assumed I was, can get away with that. Yeah. And because so many scumbag producers have done that to their wives, he assumed I was just one more scumbag producer. Mm-hmm. And there's no way he could tell I wasn't. So I don't blame him entirely. He's probably had a hundred thousand scumbag producers ahead of me in front of his court who were suppressing their income so the wife wouldn't get it now and they would get it paid back later and get the deal later. Um, anyway, I wonder if they did I, any, I, like... tell that, I tell that story to say how in reality it happens with your ideas too. You get somebody who's sure you're a scumbag, no good writer. You're a mm-hmm. hack writer because this thing does not work. And you know it works. You mm-hmm. know it'll work. And you cannot convince this person. And they say it's out. It's gone. Mm-hmm. Moving on. I was thinking the thing that you did right, though, like with the first version that you were talking about where they both had two different options and one of them was thinking something, the other one was thinking something else. And then the thing that you did correct was you asked them, what is it that you're having an issue with? What's so obvious? Not in a hostile way, like you said, you, you know, you're genuinely curious. And I think like a lot of times when you get notes, you don't always get a chance to ask the person, you know, especially like if you're getting notes from, you know, studio executives or something like that, you don't get the option to question them about their notes. They're just, you know, giving you these edicts from on high or whatever. But if you can ask people, then you can kind of narrow down what the what the misunderstanding is or what's what what they're not seeing that you you see so clearly you know well you know what i would tell people listening to the show who end up running the show is do question them if somebody yeah. gives you know somebody gives you know that so undoes your episode or so hurtful to your episode you have to say you have to say what is it about that that is fixed by your nose it's not there and i'm not saying anything. I'm not saying that's a stupid note. There's an awful note. I'm not going to do it. Instead, I acknowledge that it's maybe a legitimate point of view, but mm-hmm. I always say, well, what is that perspective? Because I don't have it. I do not understand why this isn't working or why your note will fix it. Could you just tell me? Mm-hmm. Do it that way. Yeah. And then they usually tell you, well, it's because the girl's wearing an orange hat. Mm-hmm. I'll take that! Yeah, yeah. yeah, you often find something dumb. Yeah, it is stupid, yeah. And, but you still don't say, oh, that was so stupid. You just go back in the rewrite room and say, uh, call wardrobe and have her hat changed. You know? yeah. I'm, I'm exaggerating the point. It's usually not that, it's not that simple. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just not because this character said that. And so how can you do the scene when that character has that point of view? And you go, well, if that bothers you, I'm like that. In the rewrite room, you go, well, he didn't have to state that point of view. I mean, let, let it be subtext. Yeah. And he'll satisfy his guy because he just didn't say it out loud. And sometimes it's an easy fix. Mm-hmm. So be diplomatic. That's that's my my point. You brought it up again by saying you thought I handled it right mm-hmm. with the, those two guys. Yeah, always be diplomatic. And I I told you I I was in a show where in a pilot and the guy told the network go fuck themselves because he didn't like their no. Mm-hmm. And I swear I could have handled it. All I had to say what is it? He was saying that the room made him claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. It didn't make anybody else claustrophobic, so it's one guy who's going to be the the advisor or the program uh, 
exactly different from the studio, from the network. I don't remember if it's studio or network, but anyway, he said, it makes me claustrophobic. It's going to make everybody claustrophobic. And I said, nobody's ever complained about being claustrophobic, is what I would have said. Mm-hmm. But Barry said, go fuck yourself. That's the stupidest <laughs> note. That's a stupid fucking note. Get out of here. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, really mean. And the next day, they, they, they pulled the plug on the show uh, indirectly. They, they, they released actors to their second show options who, were, who had agreed to my show. Uh, as a courtesy of the actors, letting them know, oh, this show's not going to make it. Uh-huh. Didn't tell us, but just told the <laughs> yeah. actors. And then we found out from the actors, they had all been released from having to commit entirely to the show. And it was all because Jerry, because Barry, in a moment when he was feeling shitty, he had to tell somebody to go fuck themselves when he didn't have to be done. It was so much money and time making that pilot. It was a good pilot, and it might have been a successful series. And he had to say to tell that guy to fuck himself. And those are the words he used. I don't normally speak that way. Um, I would say go uh, have a coitus with yourself. (laughs) I'd be nicer about it. Uh, But I wouldn't. You know, one thing. I do this in personal life, too, and I am guilty of it. Sometimes I get so mad, and I know it's going to come back and bite me. But I will say something to somebody. Fuck you, or shut up or something that I know is too extreme, mm-hmm. but it gives you that momentary relief mm-hmm. from that tension you're, you've, that's built up, but it's going to do you more harm than it did that person. And so it's stupid. Mm-hmm. It's just stupid, but we all do it. I've, I flip somebody off when I'm driving. I've, I've, um, I've you know, yelled something to somebody who goes by because they did something bad or whatever. It only can hurt you, and mm-hmm. it all does is give you a moment of relief, but I've done it. Yeah. I've, I've never done it in the mo- in the movie TV business. I've never told anybody fuck off because I I'm very aware. It's harder to put things in your personal life sometimes it is in your business life. Your business life, you just live that as you 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 do business to live your personal life. You know, it gives you yeah, the money, exactly. the income, yeah. whatever. So there you can. But when you don't want to sit at home and you're dealing with your wife, and with your wife, you've got to always worry about every single word you say you know mm-hmm. because then you never have a chance to just be you mm-hmm. but we do kind of they say you always hurt the ones you love i think it's true mm-hmm. you tend to, the ones who love them will forgive you you sometimes abuse hopefully them. <laughs> yeah yeah, but, yeah that's the thing too you know like about writing as you understand the psychology of characters and how one thing leads to another the cause and effect but in a, in the real world it's like you know you don't always you can't always be objective like that you know and yeah. you know film and television you know that world is very um machiavellian in a way because it's there's so much at stake and there's so much money and there's so many egos and so much power and control and all this kind of stuff you have to tread very lightly you know which is obviously different than a relationship in most cases you know and that's right. one of those kind yeah. of relationships you know which some people are but there are people in those relationships yeah. too but um even when I've been dating somebody who I need, know I need to impress or she'll leave, mm-hmm. there are limits. But in TV, you can't have limits. In TV, that's your livelihood. That's what you want to do. And these people are more are are more um, thin-skinned than anybody you're ever going to deal with, on even on your personal level. It just doesn't make sense to irritate somebody who has power over you. 
And yeah, and it's better to be subtle and like, you know, gain the um, control of the situation in a way that's not as direct, you know, and not as, uh, you know, potentially harmful, you know, like that's a lot of, it's not just that, you know, you lost out on that opportunity, the actors lost out on an opportunity, they went to another opportunity, but maybe it didn't work either, you know, and then there's all, the, there's so many other people involved. It's a, you know, I probably told you one time, I think I mentioned this one time, but you, you get stupid notes and it like, it, it is infuriating, you know what I mean? It's like, it takes a second to kind of take a moment or two to kind of like, okay, well, how, how do you, you know, like, why is it that you're seeing it that way? You know? Well, I know, I know. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And sometimes I've done that and I have walk away saying, such an obsequious asshole, Cam. Mm-hmm. You know, why are you so obsequious? Why just stand up? Yeah. But but then the other part of me says, Hey man, I like writing, I like the amount of money I make for writing. I'm not gonna screw it up for a moment. Mm-hmm. I did stand up, I think tell me if I've told you this or if it's it's familiar, but when I was I did a series with Tim Robbins mm-hmm. and the network said you gotta fire Tim Robbins because he's a terrible actor. Just a note, because he's a terrible actor. Tim Robbins from Shawshank Redemption, yeah. <laughs> Who, who's won two Emmys, yeah. two yeah. Oscars. Yeah, two Oscar winning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but, he, but at that point, he had done nothing. He was an unknown mm-hmm. when I found yeah. him. And, um, well, I found him. I mean, I found him for my project. I didn't find him. But yeah, he, yeah. He was the courier. He was just working as a courier. He came in auditions. And I loved him. He was a great actor even then. Mm-hmm. And what he was doing in the show was wonderful subtle smart and really well done mm-hmm. and they said you fire this locks and they called them a locks mm. uh, a dead fish i guess yeah yeah you fire this locks or we will can't oh so i said i won't this is where i stood up for myself i said i won't fire him i said you guys this is a mistake i said what's your problem i did the right thing for you what's your problem with Tim Rome? he's a terrible actor Mm-hmm. Had they said we don't like his look, I would have fought that too. But if they said a lot of things, they might have said when I said he's a terrible actor, it was totally the reverse. He was the best actor on the set. Mm-hmm. I had to say, no, he isn't. He's at this point, I think, the best part of the series. So I'm not going to fire him. I actually did that. I said I'm not going to fire him. So how was I rewarded for my bravery or my? It's not so much as bravery as it was. Uh, just doing the right thing. I I did the right thing, and they said, "All right, well, we're going to shut down the whole show, and, and you just put 125 people out of work instead of one." Mm-hmm. They said it that way, and I went, "Shit." Yeah, yeah. I didn't say shit. To, I didn't say shit to them. I'm thinking on the phone. I'm thinking fast. I'm like, they mean it. They're going to shut down the whole show, and I've already got everybody, everybody's there. You know, we're all in, we're in pre-production. We we already shot the pilot. Right. And I can give 125 people their was it pink slip? What's what's it called? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, pink slip. Yeah, yeah. Pink slip. Uh, 125 people pink slip or one. Mm-hmm. And I didn't answer them there. I went home and thought about it. And then on principle, I should stand with him. Mm-hmm. But he's still going to get fired because they'll fire me and him and the whole and shut the whole show down. We'll all get fired. Yeah. So there was nothing to gain by not firing Tim and everything to lose. So, except my own integrity, I guess. Yeah. 
So I said to Tim, I explained it to Tim. I had to call Tim. It was Christmas time. He's going home to his family telling me, finally, you know, they all said I wouldn't make it an actor. I just got my own show. I'm the star of a, of a series. Yeah, yeah. And it was on there. It was an on there commitment. Mm-hmm. And um, instead, he was now going to go home and tell him he was fired. Mm-hmm. And nobody believed he was a good actor yet because he hadn't had a job. So um, so I, I called him. I said, I said, Tim, I have to. I didn't start out with Tim. Tim, oh hey Ken, how you doing? Oh man, I, you know it's so good. I really love the script today. And I would slow down for a minute. I have to tell you something. There's something bad happened. Mm-hmm. The network, for reasons that I do not understand, want me to replace you. And he dead silence. And I said two things. I want to say one, you're a wonderful actor, and that's probably what everybody tells somebody. They yeah, yeah, it's not you, it's me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you have great said, <laughs> Yeah, I said um. You're the best part of the show. I think I yeah. told most of you. You didn't believe either one. And he hated me from that day on. To this day, he probably hates me because he probably thinks I just got rid of him because I wanted to ch- make a change in the show. I don't know what he thinks, but he didn't want to hear the thing about putting 125 people out of business, out of out of work. He just said, I, he said, goodbye, hung up on me. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. You know what I mean? Nobody likes to be rejected. You know what I mean? Especially when you're writing that high and you think it's going to be your moment. And then you realize, oh, you're the only one that's out. You know that can't be easy. Yeah, my 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 left ear just went out. Hello. Oh, okay. I can hear you in my right ear. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Let me let me just finish, let's just finish the thought because I still hear you in my right ear. Yeah. Um. That was one of the hardest things I ever did was firing Tim Robbins because I knew he was a wonderful actor, and I didn't want to be one of these idiots who early in his career was telling him he wasn't good enough. Right. He didn't believe me. He didn't believe yeah. I wasn't one of those people. Yeah. And he was really furious at me for a long time. And then we, we didn't talk. I didn't talk to his agent. So to this day, I don't know what he thinks. I'm sure I'm somebody he remembers as one of the people he hates. Mm. Firing him from a show that went on the air with somebody, with everybody still in the show except him. And replacement for his part. And it'd be so humiliating for him after he told his family about his show and all this stuff. If the show goes on the air without him, there's a different guy in that part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like if, it's, you know, that's the part of the business. It's a very cutthroat, you know, you never quite understand like what's going on or, you know, like for, like you said, for reasons unknown, you don't really know what it is that somebody's got an issue with, you know, it could be, he wore an orange shirt, that writer. Day, you know? Yeah. That's what happens with writers. Writers, sometimes they'll tell you this script, this script is awful. I, I, again, this reminds me of another idea that when I wrote my, my first, my first, spec script that got me my job on taxi which was the very first thing i ever wrote uh somebody told me it was a piece of crap and that same script got me two interviews one on taxi and one on, with a producer who said i'm going to put you on my show when i have my next show but the one guy said it was a piece of crap now fortunately for me i had i said to three people and two of them loved it mm-hmm. and one hired me based on it and one guy told me it was a piece of crap so you're up against that as writers yeah. for all you listening. Somebody may tell you something you have is crap. Do not let that destroy you. Yeah. Uh, it's going to happen. Somebody, and it turned out later on, I saw some of that guy's work, and it was all crap, including the show he was working on. They were thinking about hiring me for it. was crap. Everything that guy ever did was crap. So when something was really good, he didn't get it. That's what happened with Tim Robbins. All the acting was so over the top. The guy comes in, is playing everything so well. These dumbass um, 
finance people or the business people at Paramount, or was a studio, now I remember it was Paramount. Yeah. Paramount, the business people couldn't see the good acting. Mm-hmm. All they could see is he, st- he stood out because the other acting was so bad. It wasn't bad. The other acting was very broad, and he was playing a more real character, which was perfect for the character he was because he was the base to our show. He was the center. He was like the Alex Rieger of mm-hmm. Taxi. It was perfect for the role, yet they wanted to be big and silly like, like the other characters who were doing big and silly well. Yeah. But we're big and silly. He wanted everybody. They they thought everybody should be big and silly in the show and didn't recognize his talent. So sometimes you're going to write something so good that people who are used to reading crap all day look at it and say, it doesn't fit in here. It's not in this world. It must mm-hmm. be crap. It must be really crap. Yeah. And and that's why the, when that guy wrote, did all of, I saw all his shows before and the show after, I knew the guy who gave me the, the note was full of shit because that's what he does. Shit. Yeah. And um but it hurt when he first told me. Yeah. And then right. I had those other things that I rebounded from. But somebody's gonna tell you your work's crap when it's great. Mm-hmm. And they don't get it. This also you, you ever hear the guy who wrote uh Confederacy of Dunces? Yeah, that, that novel that. that novel won the a Pulitzer Prize, but some people told him it was awful and he killed himself. I mean yeah. he obviously had other problems as well. They've gone that far with it, but it was so devastating after he wrote his masterpiece novel that he knew was brilliant and couldn't sell it anywhere. Everybody was telling him it was no good. Yeah. And then after he died, it was published and, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. So. That brings up an interesting question, too, is like, how do you differentiate from knowing your own work, your own integrity, believing in yourself versus being delusional? You know, because some people think know. their work is great and you can just be like maybe it's great maybe maybe i'm not the audience you know what i mean but uh i don't see what it is that you're talking about and you know you don't want to tell somebody like i'm very careful when i critique people's writing or critique people's work you know i don't i'm not trying to deflate their you know ego or or ambition you know what i mean i usually always address the work but you can tell sometimes when you know i've critiqued people that like if you critique their work and you can see how delusional they are by their response to the critique, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's true too. Sometimes that'll be the case. Here's what I, I usually say to students: I usually say, if you give it to one person and that person says this is crap, it means nothing. Yeah. And even to ten people, and ten people tell you it's crap, you better think about rewriting. <laughs> They're on to something. Yeah. Yeah. And unless they all know each other, like yeah. it. Unless ten other people said it was great, then you're just confused. Yeah, yeah. But I'm right. saying, don't don't let one or two people tell you your work's no good because it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, and but on the other hand, your point about being delusional, if everybody's telling you your work's no good, everybody's telling you that, it's probably no good. And then there's some flukes that like everyone tells them, everyone tells them it's not good. It comes out anyway, and it's a huge hit. Everybody loves it. You know what I mean? It's like you. Yeah. It, it's a rare that's a pretty rare you know i, mean, I can't have, i don't know I don't, of any cases of that but i'm sure it's happened <laughs> you know sure i don't have happened. an example but you hear people talk about like no one would buy this show you know what i mean i've heard that a lot where somebody's like i tried to sell this show to every studio in town and i couldn't no one would buy it and then i this one you know obscure place said let's give it a go they give it the green light and boom next thing you know that's how you get family guy or you know like something like that some huge you know it's rare but you know you if you believe in it, you just believe in it. You know what I mean? I know that's what keeps delusional people continuing to write because a hundred people tell them it's no good. And they say, 
I'm looking for 101 because it yeah. happens. And you guys say, well, it does. But it's also like buying buying something based on you're going to make, you're going to win the lottery this week. You know, yeah. I just bought a ticket. Mm-hmm. I'm going to win the lottery. So I'm going to buy this house. It's a million dollar house. Uh, no, you're probably not going to win the lottery. And the guy yeah. says, why not? I have a chance. And you guys say, yeah. <laughs> when a delusional person gives you something that everybody says is bad. There is that one person who might put it in the right place and it makes money or the right angle or whatever. Yeah. Or none of us are seeing it because we're all in the business and somebody outside the business might see it. It's a possibility, but it's like winning the fucking lottery. You can't count on it. Yeah. And write something else. You know what I mean? Write another yeah. thing. That's okay. You can, and keep, you know, hawking this one all around town, but then have another one in the, in your trunk or your back pocket. So that, that way, yeah. you know, and learn from those, Learn from that last story, you know, learn from that. Yeah, you got to learn from stuff. You know what's interesting in our conversations? You remind me of so many things when we talk that are sidebars or stuff I thought I forgot. Yeah. One incident reminds me of another one. It reminds me of how useful all that information is. Yeah. But how do you teach these things if you don't know a lot from personal experience and from learning from reading or seeing examples? You get it as you get older, but we're all guilty of that. When I was 17, I thought I knew better than everybody. Right. When I was 18, 19, 20, sure. I thought I was smarter than my parents and smarter than these totally. people. Totally. Same than thing. Same. You know? It might be yeah. time to say happy birthday. <laughs> we'll roll out and uh, we'll cut this one, but that was a good show, and I will talk to you next week, and have a good week. All right. See you in a little bit.